listening to The Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema with Big Willie and the Samurai, bringing class to trash since 1977. Everybody, welcome to the GGTMC. We are back. We are live, or we are barely alive. Barely alive. <laughs> this morning, it's early, uh, tired, um, but we are ready to talk about some movies. So, this week is our Diabolic DVD week. Uh, Large Williams turned to a uh, program, and he chose 2008's Gomorrah, directed by Matteo Garone. I believe in, you know, Garone. I believe that's his. Garone, Garone, potato, potato. Yeah. Garoni, Garoni, Macaroni, uh, and uh, Ninja 3, The Domination, directed by one Sam Furstenberg, who uh, also, uh, I believe he's, uh, I believe he's is- Israeli, but uh, I might be wrong about that, but I, I, I am fairly certain he is as well, yes. Yeah, so, but good old Sam Furstenberg, we'll talk about his filmography here in a little bit, because he's got a doozy of one, so, <laughs> but that is what we are doing. We'd like to thank DiabolicDVD.com. Go over there, get you some, get you some stuff, get your region-free player, and buy you some stuff, baby. And tell them we sent you. Yes, please do. Um, I'm trying to think if there's anything else I wanted to mention. There was something I wanted to mention in the intro today, and because uh, I've been meaning to mention it, I said I would mention it. And uh, but before I mention anything, let's just get into what we've been watching. Large William, I'm sure you got a few things. I only got one, but I'll kick it over to you. Sure, and I'll try to keep it quick because I don't want my cereal to get soggy. Um, cashy blueberry and oat, not a bad cereal. Uh, as my pen drops, I'm not to grab it. I had a pretty good week actually. I haven't had a good week like this in some time. It feels like um, I talked about Legion of Iron last week. My nephew slept over, he's 16, and I sometimes forget that he's 16, like I, th- I think of him as younger because he's my nephew, mm-hmm. uh, and he's uh, he's pretty receptive to me programming some stuff, so uh, I let him choose between The Last Dragon, The Warriors, and Road Warrior. He's into cars and stuff, he's a big Fast and Furious fan. So, nice, nice. um, I told him, well, listen, this is, this is the set piece. If you want to see cars and mayhem with road warrior, but he, uh, he chose the warriors and, uh, that's cool. I mean, it's, it's top 10 all time favorite for me. I haven't watched it in some time, maybe, I don't know, three, four or five years, but, uh, it's still, you know, still a great one. I mean, what can I say about the warriors? It's, uh, it's so well edited. I just think the, the, the universe that Hill creates, it was fantastic, and he was wise to make it a bit fantastical, um, made it all the more memorable. So, yeah, uh, great as always. Uh, then I decided to do another rewatch, wanted to do a double, and uh, again, I let him pick between a few different films. I let him pick between Dragon Lord, Dragons Forever, and Project A, because uh, I have the, uh, the Hong Kong license disc for all those, so... He picked Dragons Forever. And I'm actually really glad he did because 
this was the third time I'd seen it, but once was a long time ago. The second time is maybe about, I don't know, six months to a year ago, maybe somewhere, somewhere within the past year. And I remember thinking to myself, oh, this wasn't as good as I remember it. And uh, I was wrong because I clearly wasn't in a good mood when I'd seen it for the second time because, man, it's fucking amazing. Yeah. Um, it's, you know, the last film that uh, the Three Dragons did together, Yim Biao, Samo, and Jackie. And uh, it's ridiculous. As usual, unfortunately, Yim Biao gets kind of marginalized, which is a shame, but... Um, and it's it, it's got all three doing some amazing amazing shit. There's the the legendary fight between Benny the Jet and uh, Jackie at the end. That's just brutal. Yunhua plays a scumbag bad guy as always. It's it, it's amazing. I mean, if you haven't seen Dragons Forever, you know there, I, there's so many great set pieces in it uh, from the the yacht to you know the warehouse. It's just incredible. Um, then I just just I don't know how I ended up jumping into it. I was looking something up for, I don't know. Anyway, I stumbled into a vice documentary called cowboy capitalists. And it's only about 45 minutes long part of their fringe series, which I'd seen a few before one about a New York drug dealer and just people, um, that have the entrepreneurial spirit spirit in unconventional situations. And this was uh, one where they were kind of looking at some Americans that were, hustling in Africa to make some money. Not not illegally, mind you, but they were just uh, grinding out in Africa, trying to make a dollar. And um, this was a guy who was, kind of, who was brokering a lot of deals between countries and, you know, for, for, you know, fleets of cars or trucks or all sorts of different things. And it looked at um, him and the two guys that he hired as truck drivers that were young American guys to drive from a fleet of, uh, or at least I think three trucks were going to be used or, or subleased or some, I don't know, something by the UN for something in, uh, South Sudan, but they had to go from South Africa to South Sudan, which is basically across Africa. And man, it's pretty interesting. It's about 40 minutes long in the bullshit and the, the corruption and, just the nonsense that that goes on and they have to put up with trying to get these trucks across the whole fucking continent uh and, and just the, the simple concept was truck drivers in africa go and i thought well this should be something yeah and it was and it was man I, I think you'd really dig it um for sure i think most of our listeners would it's and it's 40 minutes long so it's readily available on youtube and on vice's website <coughs> cowboy capitalists yeah. um easy title to remember there yeah, for sure. <laughs> uh, then I stayed in the Vice Magazine documentary rabbit hole, as you tend to do when you get into a few of them. And I did the Warrior State, which was um, uh, Mexico is a country that fascinates me in a lot of ways and kind of saddens me with, with how rife it is with violence and corruption and crime, um, despite being a pretty beautiful culture and people. I've visited there before and, you know, just, just through art and cinema and stuff. Um, having a bit of a fascination with it. And it looks at uh, 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 these uprisings that are coming from villagers and and farmers and stuff that basically are not becoming vigilantes, but they're, they're becoming like a community police in a way. Mm-hmm. And how that's 
impacting the crime rates in certain areas. And that one's even shorter. It's only about 30 minutes long. And again, it was quite good. Not as good as Cowboy Capitalist, but worth everyone's time. And then another final Vice documentary. This one was a real, uh, a real fucking miserable downer. It uh, was called This is What Winning Looks Like. This was recommended to me by Mark Wilson, a good friend of the show, fellow Canuck, living in the States. He married a fine American girl, if memory serves. Um, but this is about the Americans in Afghanistan um, trying to train the uh, Afghani people um, as they're getting ready to pull out in 2014. And, and there's everything from drug abuse like to with the Afghanis to rampant uh, sexual child sexual abuse with some of the police captains, which I've I've unfortunately read about before with a really really awful, and I mean that in terms of how sad it is. A documentary called "The Dancing Boys of Afghanistan." Um, yeah, this one's this was ninety minutes. It was pretty sad, man. It's. I think I spoke to you after I watched it, and I was pretty depressed. I was like, man, this is – fuck, I'm in a bad mood, and i got to go and watch Gamora, which is pretty bleak. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's a good one. I, I don't think it's – I didn't like it as much as Mark did, but I'm, I'm burned a little bit on the Middle East stuff myself, um, mm -hmm. at, le at least from a war perspective. You know, I don't mean that to sound callous or crass, just right. – you know, we've been inundated with it as, as a continent for so long. Um, you hear so much. It, yeah. Um, then I did Graceland, which is a Filipino take on uh, an independent Filipino look at uh, a riff on Kurosawa's High and Low, which we've covered on this show. Mm -hmm. uh, it seems like a lot of countries cover that. It's great territory to mine. Um, there's some sleaze. It's pretty bleak. It's sort of like uh, Inaritu in that it's very miserable and bleak. Um, it's a lot more amateurish than I would have liked. Uh, it's budget shows. It's some of the actors are okay at best. Like the lead, I don't really care for. I did like uh, two other central characters, a policeman and uh, the rich uh, father whose daughter gets kidnapped. I mean, there's a few interesting wrinkles on the high and low thing, but uh, and it kind of finishes relatively strong. But I think they had one twist too many, and you know, like I said, it just I don't. It's getting a lot of praise, you know, from the film festival circuit, but. You know, it was like a six and a half for me. Mm -hmm. uh, and then two more very quickly. I got around to, I was going to say Jackie Chan, Johnny Toe's latest drug war. Oh, and yes. uh, man, I cannot wait for you to see this. Yeah, I saw the trailer. I watched it. It's funny that that came up. I, I watched the trailer for it um, this week. Uh, I was watching some trailers and I saw that Johnny Toe had a new film coming out in Drug War. And I was like, well, I'll check out the trailer here. So, looks interesting. It's very good. It's very tight. Um, the consensus seems to be among people in our group. It's upper middle tier toe or it's lower upper tier toe. Meaning, you know, I, I, for me, I'd, I'd score like an 8.25. Mm -hmm. it, and it's funny because Josh Sam got the same vibe as me. It's got sort of Michael Mann-esque flourishes. It's kind of really tightly coiled and I'll tell you the most interesting thing about this film is I'm so used to sh toe shooting in restaurants and hotels and alleyways in Macau and, and you know, neon in Hong Kong and just seeing the landscape and cityscape that he usually shoots in. For him to go to mainland China and shoot highways and factories and um, 
a much broader geographical canvas. And it seemed that there was an intent to really do so. Um, it's, it's visually fascinating. There's some great performances from mainland Chinese actors that I didn't really know about. Um, and it's, it's nice to see mainland China not fuck this one up. Cause that's been the big problem is they've had their hand in so much nationalistic pride. That's kind of crammed on people's throats in films. Yeah. Uh, you know, luckily toes, a, a, a director of some prominence that, you know, sort of like censorship here is directors with pull can get away with more shit. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, it's kind of like that, I guess with him, but it's a really good fucking film. Like it's a real guy's film, man. It's, uh, it's, it's I quite liked it. And then I finished my week with delay with another film. I'm very, very curious for you to see, uh, Takeshi Miike's lesson of the evil. Yes. I've heard about this one, man, this one's something else. It's, uh, kind of a film of two halves and, um, I'm still trying to wrap my brain around it. There's a lot more going on than people would initially believe in the back end. This film will never get a release in America or North America for that matter. Like as far as theatrical, you could probably order it through some DVD label or something. But the reason I say this is there's a lot of violence, gun violence against, uh, against youth. Yeah. Yeah. That's not going to get released here. No, <laughs> at least no not chance. at least not prominently. Anyway, it, it, no, it might squeak out somewhere, but it's not going to get, uh, you know, definitely not a mainstream release, and definitely not uh, pushed anywhere. And it's not that it's more extreme. Like I think someone was saying, well, what about uh, you know something like uh, not Salo? What's the Serbian film? Um, what about that? That got a release, but that kind of different subject matter too. As brutal as that is, like this is something that really strikes a nerve with what's going on. You know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So, well, it, it's, Serbian film is, you know, it goes it goes that one step further, which almost takes it into you know satire or absurdity, right? So, mm-hmm. whereas mm-hmm. Like, from what I read about this, it doesn't seem like uh, this is more like commentary almost in some ways. Um, it's a black comedy, which is unless you're a director as good as Mika, you can't handle this stuff that way. Mm-hmm. But I'll tell you what, it's. Uh, the last third of this film, man, it's like, I keep saying it, but it's reminiscent of Carrie with the color palette of Hobo with a shotgun, with shades of Videodrome, with, um, there's another something I really got, uh, what was it, what did I really get a strong vibe of? I can't remember now. It's a wild film, though, man. I, I quite liked it. Um, a little... I'm going to do a, a bonus show with uh, Jakey and uh, and Uncool Cat on it because they've both seen it. And it's, yeah, it's fantastic and it's fascinating. There's a lot going on than you would believe. Um, Miki's just brilliant at this stage in his career. So there you go. Yeah, very interesting what he's doing and the things he's doing. So. All right, that's everything, huh? Uh, everything except the bowl of blueberry oat, Kashi. <laughs> Okay, I wanted to mention a uh, film. We had an independent filmmaker reach out to us, uh, name of uh, Jared Masters, and uh, he made a film. It, uh, it's a six feature uh, called uh, Teachers Day. Um, actually, I think it's called something else, but no, I think it's called Teachers Day. But it might be called Slink as well. At least that's what the link says it's called. Um, but I wanted to give it a mention, you know, give it a shout out. You know, we don't get a lot of, you know, it's, it's cool when these independent filmmakers reach out to us 
and uh you know want to get a mention on the show and stuff and i'm totally cool with that because you know it kind of like you know it kind of touches on my fanboy pride a little bit i gotta admit um Mm -hmm. but yeah you you guys can uh, look into uh, look into it's called teacher's day first teaser uh there's a youtube link out there there's you know stuff like that so check it out look into it support it Good old stuff like that, right? Independent film, yeah. Yeah, independent films. Let's get the end. <laughs> but it's supposed to be a love letter to eighty slasher horror films, so I'm 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 interested to see it. I am, I gotta be honest with you. Um I think the the IMDB link is called Slink, but anyway it it, it says something about well, I, I, don't, I don't I don't I'm afraid I'm confused with the link and what he's saying in the email. But either way, the email says Teacher's Day first teaser. So Check it out, frolicpictures.com. Check it out, guys. All right. So, that's out of the way. I want to mention um, the only thing I watched this week because uh, I've been busy. Well, actually, you know what? I'll go ahead and mention the other thing I watched this week because of one Red Waffle Paul. Oh, nice. Because I mentioned that I had started Braquo, or I'm going to say Braquo, (laughs) Okay. (laughs) <laughs> that I started it uh, last week. Well, I finished it this week, the first season. And man, what a cliffhanger! <laughs> I didn't see that cliffhanger coming. But uh, yeah, it's a very solid show, man. Very highly recommended. It's very, very good stuff. Um, yeah, yeah, really good stuff. So Paul comes through big time. Hmm. So is that swig of coffee right there? Nice. All right, but yeah, definitely check that out, guys. You get a chance. Now I'm on to something else. I can't remember what I'm watching now. I usually do one show at a time, so I can't remember what I was getting back into now. But whatever, I'll get I'll get to that when I wake up in three hours, um, because I always wake up right after we're done right after we're done with the show. <laughs> I know the time when you want to go back to sleep. By the time you've got another first gear, now I'm with you, yeah, man. Yep. Yeah. Well, by then I probably had two cups of coffee, and I think it's a two cupper today. Today. So. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No doubt, man. It's an it's a, it's an IV drip <laughs> kind of day today. <laughs> Um, but I did watch one film. I watched uh, Brian Eno, The Man Who Fell to Earth. Uh, I think it's called Brian Eno, The Man Who Fell to Earth, 1971 to 1977. I think is the official title of it. Um, I had heard about this documentary forever ago, um, and it's never gotten a release. So I was like, you know what? Let's go to Old Faithful uh, and see if it's it's out there anywhere. And sure enough, it was. It, it was on, it's on YouTube in 16 parts. And uh, the Brian Eno one is, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, because I don't think it has an official release yet. It's funny, there was just a write up I read somewhere about this, I want to say two weeks ago. So, I, I remember I'd seen you'd watched it, it was funny. And uh, so I checked it out, and uh, yeah, man, it's one of my favorites of the year so far. Uh, I'm a big Brian Eno fan. Um, I'm about to commit blasphemy on air here. I actually think Brian Eno is more responsible for. What everybody likes about David Bowie, I think Brian Eno is the reason why. Um, but you know that's that's just me. But I just think Brian Eno is very interesting. He's a you know he's he's one of those guys who's almost anti music in a weird way, and uh, so he's you know you know the the vanguards, the people that are always pushing the boundaries, tend to be, you know, they tend to go against everything you consider music, and uh, that's what I always enjoy because you know being a former musician myself. It's very, there's there's always a lot of fun to be had in, you know, the G, C, and D chords and, and playing something simple and something that'll make you move and something that'll make you bang your head and something that'll make you do that. But 
there's always as a mu- ex musician that it, it's always struck me more interesting to people that challenge all that stuff. So, um, and Eno was one of those people, definitely. Uh, so very interesting stuff. Not a lot of Eno himself in there. He he does interviews and stuff, but he's not really a very outgoing sort. It seems, but uh, yeah, really good stuff, man. Uh, very interesting. Early yeah. days of electronics and and music and and uh, very strange stuff. <laughs> yeah, he's a name I'm familiar with more being mentioned in passing. I'm not a Bowie fan, full disclosure. I know some people are going to start throwing stones. I really I can't get it. Bowie and Bruce Springsteen, you and I have talked to Springsteen before, two huge singers that loom large over our generation that, and even a little bit before us, I just can't get into, man. I've tried and tried and tried. They're very, two very different <laughs> very different musicians but yeah. um just yeah. can't get into either one man but no you know i can you know i can respect that because i mean it's just the way it is i mean you know you, music is music is probably the most subjective because you know you just you can feel it on a gut level sometimes uh, and when a bunch of people like one musician it's uh, you know doesn't mean i think it's even more subjective than film really in a lot of ways so yeah, it certainly can be. You know, you list because we may rewatch films, but you re-listen to albums multiple, multiple, multiple times. Usually, over the course of years, it becomes almost a daily or a weekly thing with some albums. Mm-hmm. Well, music for me has always been very—it's uh, very heartfelt. As in, you know, I mean, I, sometimes it just touches me in a in a weird way. I mean, I can I can say. Even to this day, I'm a 40 year old man, and every now and then I'll hear something on pop radio, and I'm like, "Well, that was amazing." And uh, my wife would be like, I can't believe you even like that shit. <laughs> my wife is the one who listens to pop music, not me, really. Mm-hmm. But it's just the way music touches me in any way. It can be just random, and uh, sometimes it can just be a feel. Sometimes it's something I pursue, and sometimes it's you know it's it's getting to me, and I don't even know it. it, it it's real, you know, it's a complicated subject, obviously, music, but. Uh, you know, I think anybody that ever listens to this show realizes that our music spectrum collectively goes across the board, that they know that, uh, you know, we don't do a music show, but um, they can definitely tell that my tastes are um, as random as they come. Uh, you know, like I said before, I don't know if I've ever said on the show, but I know I've told people, if my wife's ever on a car ride with me, she hates it when I put shuffle on because oh, nice. I, I have no, <laughs> I have no discernible taste that you can you know that you can te- contextualize because i just my music taste is all over the map so yeah. <laughs> it, it drives people crazy usually when they're with me because you know one minute i'm listening to you know curtis blow and the next minute i'm listening to something <laughs> from norway and then that slides into something some you know uh crowd electronic music music you know, or something like that so you know it's all over the map it's just the way it is and then that's just the way my brain works so uh it drives her crazy though i can tell you that <laughs> Yeah, my wife doesn't like me to usually pick me. Oh, she's a little more inclined. But I know what you mean about the eclectic mix because sometimes you get into a rhythm with certain kinds of music and it's jarring to jump around. But yeah, <laughs> yeah, to go from uh, I mean, good example is I, I love that uh, Robin Thicke song, that Blurred Line song. I love that song. Yeah, my wife loves it too. It's okay to me. I'm uh, yeah, it's it's a catchy song. That's that's yeah. definitely definitely true, man. And. Uh, It'll go from that, and then all of a sudden, you'll, you'll hear something. It's like, <laughs> all right, and it's over. <laughs> yeah. And she's like, that just, that just took it totally out of the mood. I'm like, well, you know, to me, that just, you know, that, that works. <laughs> yeah, go from that to that. That works for me. So, 
but you know, to each, to each their own music is like I say, it's definitely a subjective thing, but I think, you know, people, when they hear what I listen to, they, they kind of, it kind of messes them up a little bit. I know, well, I'm not going to say on the air, but I know there's some people that uh, I deal with every day. that are just kind of like, what the fuck is wrong with you? You know? So <laughs> anyway, that's all I watched. Uh, didn't watch anything else. Brockwo, uh, definitely a high recommend. Brian Eno, a high recommend as well. All right. So, Oh, rest in peace, Jim Kelly. Yeah, really. I mean, we've lost so many people this this year. And we keep, and it, it's not a slight that we don't mention them. It, the, the simple fact is, we forget to mention them. Yeah, not only that, but I mean, you you get into a situation where you almost feel like you gotta honor them in some way. And and I believe we honor all these guys: Jim Kelly, James Gandolfini, um, Larkar Lung. Yeah, Larkar Lung. That's that was the one that was stuck on the tip of my Larkar oh. tongue. Richard Matheson. Yeah, Richard Matheson. We forget about it, man. People just, you know, it. It's a sad fact about life that we all have to pass, but it just seems like lately some uh, some titans uh, have passed. And, uh, you know, I believe James Gandolfini's best work was, I mean, he's had some great work, but I believe his best work was ahead of him. And uh, it's really a shame, you know, that these guys, you know, pass away. I didn't even know uh, Jim Kelly was uh, ill. I didn't even know that. Nor did I, quite frankly. It goes to show, you know. I mean, it's one of those things I always talk about. I mean, they talk about a specimen, a man who took care of himself, athletic and everything else, but life doesn't always play fair. So that's just the way it goes. Um, but, yeah, rest in peace. Jim Kelly, former Louisvillian there. Huh? That's right, man. Jim Kelly. Had to get out of Louisville as quick as possible. <laughs> I think one year of uh, University of Louisville and he was gone. Played football, but he loved tennis. Did he? Yeah, that would make sense. He's an agile dude. He could get around quick, man. Yeah, yeah run around that clay. From what I understand, man, he loved tennis. Like I think he, there's even a picture song posted of him with a tennis racket. Yeah, so. yeah, it's like it was like a passion for him. Him and Mauricio Murley. <laughs> yeah, they, yeah. <laughs> what a what a what a mess that would have been, man. Yeah, Merely yeah. would have been fucking just cursing. Go <laughs> <laughs> would have been like, "What?" And Merley would have been like, "I'm here. I'm over here. Yeah. I'm over here." Just trying to power, just ace everything, man. Yeah, but not to make light of it, it is true. You know, it, it is it's shame. You know, rest in peace to all these great and Matheson alone. I mean, and Lark Lung. I mean, forget about it. these guys. Those two, talk about two titans of their field. Oh, forget yeah, about. Yeah, well, that's just it, man. It's it's a huge thing on the American front, and then the the, the Eastern and the Western front. Yeah, just insane. But yeah. All right, um, we're going to take a short break. Actually, I think that uh, Brian Eno film does have a DVD release. I'm looking at it on Amazon right now. Oh, only two left in stock right now on Amazon. 20 bucks a piece on DVD. No blue. Yeah, this is just one I think that just kind of, uh, kind of just, you know, it's, it's talk about under the radar. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. Well, I, I've heard yeah, something in passing. It's funny how that happens with some stuff. Other stuff just gets crammed, crammed, crammed in the throats. Yeah. yeah. All right, we're going to take a short break. Uh, what do you want to talk about first? Anything oh boy, uh, Gamora. Okay, all right, we'll be back with Gamora right after this. Yes, it's me again, and I'm back. <laughs> hey there, boys and girls. This is Maverick, New York filmmaker Abel Ferrara, director of such films as Driller Killer, Miss Forty Five, Bad Lieutenant, China Girl, Fear City, and Nine Lives of the Wet Pussy. I'm not out power drilling hoboes, smoking rock cocaine, hanging out with Bruce Willis. Uh, when I'm not doing that, I'm listening to the Milk Creeps. It's 
the podcast, whatever the fuck that is. They covered my movie Driller Killer on their very first episode, so they're obviously sick fucks. If you like that kind of thing, check them out on Facebook or iTunes. Yeah, they're called the Mill Creeps. All right. For more information, go to facebook.com slash millcreeps, millcreeps.lipson.com, or look up the Mill Creeps on iTunes or Stitcher. So our first film is 2008's Gamora. Now, I have a bit of a history with this film because this one was one that was when we started. I think the first year, first year or so when we started. Yeah, this was like a buzz one, I believe, right? Yep, 2008. And, yeah, and we were talking about it, and, and it's insane that it's been that many years, and I still haven't seen it until now. <laughs> But it's one of those things, you know, where something eludes me, and uh, we all have these films that elude us. I don't care how many how many times your intentions are good to watch a film that everybody says you should definitely check out. Um, they just elude you. I'll give you another example, you know, Elite Squad or whatever. I've not watched either one of those films, still. That's insane to me. Elite Squad 1 is so fucking good. But it's just one of those things where, you know, it just keeps eluding me. It's like, you know, it's there. But I just <laughs> it keeps eluding me. So yeah, I hear you. I got no I got no excuse other than the fact that uh, you know sometimes people just have to watch Brian Eno documentaries. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's the way it goes. Anyway, uh, I'll give a brief synopsis here. Gamora, two thousand eight, an inside look at Italy's modern day crime families. As the basic plot synopsis on IMDb. I wouldn't say that's entirely accurate. Uh, I would say you're entirely correct about it not being entirely <laughs> accurate. <laughs> um, but uh, it is interesting. Uh, that you can kind of look at it in some ways. But anyway, I want to hear what you have to think. about. We, we talked about this a little bit because I believe you did watch it the year of. Yep. And, uh, again, I think I meant to watch it, <laughs> and I never did. And uh, But I finally did this time on Blu-ray. And, uh, yeah, let's, 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 let's talk about Gamora here. <clears throat> yeah, Gamora, Italy, um, for obvious reasons for me, you know, having Italian family marrying a nice Italian girl uh, and just the cinema of Italy has, has long had a, fa- uh, say a fashion for me, a fascination for me um, the 70s Euro crime films are maybe my favorite films in the world if you want to softball me soft sell me on something it's probably a Euro crime film yeah. if, you um, had, if, if you had to pin you yeah. if you put you up against the wall and said one genre motherfucker <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that would be the one. I mean, and just or just crime films in general, right? Yeah. Um, but uh, this film came out a lot of buzz, man. At, at, uh, at Tiff, and I think I even tried to get tickets, but no dice. It was it was I think buzz out of probably Venice, 
Is Venice right before us? I know. I think Venice is like literally a few, like a, the week before TIFF, if I remember correctly. Yeah. Uh, anyway, um, this film came out. It came out the same year as Il Devo. Now, I will be forthright in saying I don't think, for me, this film is not as good as Il Devo, um, um, Paolo Sorrentino's film. Speaking of films you got to see, I agree this with must that be too. the place. Yeah, yeah. So that, that one's on my Netflix queue at the very top and uh, okay, still good, in the story. But uh, I agree with that statement as well. It's not as good as Il Devo, but. It was weird because they came out the same year, at least in terms of North American releases. Um, this is an, this is an easier sell internationally than Il Devo, though. It sure is because it's not because it deals with something that's a little easier to to access, which is uh, you know organized crime versus right. something that, that is very Italian, Il Devo. Yes, very um, Italian. So it's going to play more well recently because it doesn't it, it forces you to keep up with it versus. Um, spoon feeding you anything mm-hmm. not that this film spoon feeds you this is a, a you know i'll be forthright in saying i love this film it's an amazing film um it's a dense film though it is a very dense film um this film deals with um it doesn't deal with when people think of italy they think of the mafia they think of uh, cosa nostra this deals with the camorra which are specific to naples uh, that's the the napolitan uh organized crime basically it's older than than the mob as we know it, or the the mafia, the Cosa Nostra, um, and in a lot of ways, it's it's more entrenched in the region, which we see here, um, and uh, yeah, I guess I get I get into my notes as and that's kind of I guess the brief overview of it. The thing I love about this film, and that's the thing I think a lot of people take away really admiring about this film, is how stripped down, and how it demystifies and and doesn't romanticize um, organized crime in Italy and, and organized crime in cinema as we've we've come to know it over the years. This is very demystified and stripped down. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I agree. It's uh, this is uh, you know this is Naples, modern day Naples, right? Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, I think it's uh, it'll blow your mind, uh, kind of. Uh, <clears throat> Your, your probably your your image of Italy. Most people's image of Italy, obviously, is probably going to immediately go to Rome, and, the canals and Venice, and Venice, or, yeah, and the romanticism yeah. of uh, of Italy. Uh, this shows a little bit more of the harsh reality of uh, sections and parts of Italy. It sure does, and uh, Naples is rough, man. I know my father in law went to Naples. I don't know ten years ago. He. Like, he, he he even told me he's like man you don't fuck around in Naples it's it's pretty rough stuff and uh, it's wild to see Naples here it, it was so weird for me the first time I seen this I hadn't seen a whole lot of modern films in Naples and I remember looking at it and I just thought to myself like holy fuck this looks awful this looks as as bad as as any American ghetto that I've seen I mean mm-hmm. it looks worse yeah. in some ways because it's so run down it's, yeah. uh, it's- oh. It's it's bad. I mean, it's uh, there's these uh, housing projects. I guess you could. We, we, that's La Valle. Yeah, that's the best best what we call them here in the states anyway. These kind of concrete structures, and uh, and this one has an amazing. And when I say amazing, I mean it's just like this monstrosity of uh, just like this whole community. It's like this whole world, this whole nation, in this one uh, housing project, and it's just so downtrodden. 
and uh, it's just it's so uh, futuristic looking in some ways. Like a lot of the architecture in this is like Lavelle is a neighborhood, but it's like even the director, fantastic disc as usual, Criterion, right? But yes. um, fantastic interview with uh, Matteo Groni, who said on the disc that um, between the areas that is um, it Marco and and Chiro, the the two younger mm-hmm. guys. Um, the, the areas they run around, and then the the housing complex, f- to him, were very reminiscent of Blade Runner. Yeah, futuristic yeah. kind of sci-fi almost. Yeah, very uh, almost Clockwork Orange as well, because that, mm-hmm. that section of England that uh, uh, Kubrick used for Clockwork Orange, uh, it's all concrete and stuff, and, and you know that that place fascinates me. It's it's still there. They they shoot a TV show I watch there uh, called Misfits and. Uh, Oh, yeah, yeah. It's, just, it's just bizarre, these concrete structures that were built. And uh, that's what this looks like. It looks like it's pure concrete, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You can almost it's see it. where like something like parkour would exist because of these yeah. structures, right? <laughs> yeah, good call. Because when I think yeah. about parkour, I think, you know, it's it's almost like a like a sport of necessity. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, they didn't have a ball, so they just figured out, let's just start climbing shit and running around. And when you look yeah. at these structures, you can kind of see how that would that would come to be, right? Yeah, but being in Italy, all you need is a ball. Yeah, that's true. A, a ball that you can kick, and, yeah. and not even something round for the roll. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. No, you're right. Just the aesthetic of this film is it's it's not quite as extreme as like to mention Inaritu again. Like it's not as bleached out as that, but it's a very rough kind of craggy. Um, it's not lush in any way. I mean, there's a few moments where you see kind of some lush trees or a garden or here or there, but it's very just rough and dry and hot and and worn out and broken down and it's kind of modern, you know, Italian. You can see it's informed very much by the Italian neo neo realism post war, which, again, luckily my armchair film reviewing uh, bore true because he'd mentioned that in the uh, in the interview that Rossellini. There's a film by Rossellini did post war that really influenced him. Mm-hmm. The uh, I think some of the most interesting things about this film is the scenes with um, Tony Severello. Yeah. Um, you could argue <laughs> maybe some of the some of the dirtiest crime oh, yeah. involves Tony Severello's character and yet the the kind of uh, the disparity between his personal life which seems very clean, nice car, nice suits. Mm-hmm. Nice travel, and you know what he feeds off of, as far as a financial as for financial gain and stuff. I found I found that story for me personally the most interesting, mm-hmm. um, because uh, you know that's the side of uh, that that kind of stuff that just it bothers me the most, almost that exploitation element, and the way that he you know, he's the most dapper thing in this film. Which yeah, because the, the, there's no gangsters in three piece suits. This is like gangsters in like basketball shorts and yeah. and um, jeans and like t shirts and it's it's very much stripped down. But the Cervillo can see what this does. I mean, we haven't mentioned it yet. Is it takes a look at five stories, not even intersecting, mind you. Mm. Um, I mean, if there's a few characters that their stories intersect, but there's no intention to intersect everyone's lives. Right. Um, it's just five different stories within Naples, some more uh, rural, uh, some more urban. But, um, yeah, the Servilla one, he's basically a guy who deals with, quote-unquote, waste management, and they're dumping a lot of toxic stuff 
they go to farms and people that have land and they pay them to dump awful, yeah. awful stuff in yeah. their land. Yes. Very and awful stuff. <laughs> the thing I found so, um, kind of poignant and, and pretty incredible about his story is that I think that you could look at his story and what his character does as kind of a metaphor for the whole thing. Yeah. That, yeah. that these, these people with money, um, are infiltrating the lives of, you know, the simpler people in the region to no end. Um, and they're poisoning the land, yeah. uh, poisoning the people, and they're killing the people and killing the land and destroying everything slowly. It's rotting itself from the inside out. Yeah, because you got him, he's kind of training a character, uh, you know, another character in the film, and that character is probably maybe, what, like three, four years removed from the the two uh, the two kids who want to be Scarface. Yeah, he's probably just a few years older than them, for yeah, sure. Yeah, and then those characters are just maybe, you know, a handful of years older than the little boy who wants to be involved with the yeah, earrings. And Toto. The, uh, yeah, Toto, the little eyebrow plucker. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> So, so what you got is you got these these generations that are only like you know five and ten years removed from each other, and you, what he's basically doing, Garon, which I think is the genius of this film, is he's kind of showing you the development of this culture, and how this and how crime culture, how it how it thrives, how how crime will always thrive. There's no way around it really, because somebody is always going to need something, and the Cervillo character is like almost in a way it's like at the top of the food chain. I mean, it, it's crime, but it's crime hidden by legality and yeah diplomacy diplomacy yeah whereas you know you go all the way down to the toto character and it's basic you know young kids running numbers type of crime you know running yep. drugs you know uh, basically uh, drug mules things like that you know so you, you can see where maybe servillo's character maybe at one point in his life was toto you know for sure and i think that's the most important thing to look at with this film is it's it's not uh, heavy-handed about it, but it's it's just a, a grim look at how these generations of men. It's because the focus is more on the male dynamic, male male, you know, figure. Um, how crime is in every aspect of the culture or the region, and how it just, yeah. I mean, it focuses on you know five five different groups of of men or boys from. You know, yeah, uh, at eleven years old into probably late fifties, early sixties. It seems like to me almost like a crime, uh, more so than a crime film. And even though that's what it is, it almost feels like a, um, a morality, uh, you know, our film commentary. Right? Yeah, 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 because you know, there's so much going on, and then you get into the other story with the, uh, you know, the the um, the tailor. garment maker. Yeah, the garment yeah. maker. Yeah. And you get into that world, and uh, that world is a dark world anyway, and that's, mm-hmm. that still exists to this day. Big time. Yeah. Big time I'm, it does. I mean, I'm, I just put my iPhone on the desk here. I mean, come on. that The iPhone itself, you know, is, is made in, uh, you know, China and, and made cheaply. Uh, and, you know, there's been a lot of stuff in the news over the past few years about how those workers are treated. Yep, and uh, I mean this. This stuff still exists. I mean this. This stuff's going nowhere. Uh, it never it will. Never will. And it's hidden by diplomacy and big business. And you know, yeah, exploitation. When you infiltrate all, all levels of of society. There's no escaping it. So you have to learn to live in it. Yeah, as I've always said, you show me a very successful businessman, 
and I'll show you, you know, compromise, <laughs> compromise somewhere in his life. He made a choice. So, yeah, it's very rare that you can get to the top without compromising anything. Yep. Yeah, you got to walk on the backs of others. That's what, that's the way it goes. Yeah, no, for sure. But the film opens with a really kind of, it grabs you aesthetically. It opens in a tanning salon. Oh and, yeah, that's uh, great. I love it's, that opening. It's really saturated blue. And, uh, reminded me of, uh, Ray Liotta and revolver. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It reminded me in, uh, 2001. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> either one uh, of those, yeah. Ray Liotta in, t- in a remake of 2001 directed. No, by no, reminded me of two of myself in 2001. Oh, Oh, okay. <laughs> oh yeah. The old, uh, yeah. Bikini, bikini, bro, bikini cup briefs lying in the bed on a, on a Saturday afternoon before I'm getting ready to go out. Oh, no, no, natural. No, no, I no, no time. You know, I was I was in the nightclubs at night and sleeping away the day. So yeah. I had to uh, get my son somehow. So you know, adjusting the goggles so I didn't get t- raccoon eyes. Fuck, what a time! The smell, the smell after you tan is something else. Oh, yeah, Jesus. And that's the, the my next note actually was the I can't even imagine the smell of of tanning mixed with blood on the tanning lamps. Oh yeah, Jesus. But it's uh, there's some the thing I love about the violence in this film is it's so quick and so stark and just uh, it's not it's stylized in that it's not stylized it, it, it's very well and effectively shot but it's just very quick these quick explosions of violence and then boom it's done but it's been you know yeah because as far as like what you would traditionally call style quote unquote uh, that opening is probably as stylistic as it gets but uh, it's got a very raw documentary type feel uh, ninety very of the film. very much so uh, a, a document this film very much feels documentary style mm-hmm. oh uh, big time and it's it's crazy the film the way it uh, well the way it has a lot of tight shots it, it feels very claustrophobic there, there's not really a lot of, kind of a lot of kind of long range shots everything's kind of close-ups mm-hmm. or extreme close-ups and usually at the most you get kind of like a middle range um shot mm-hmm. of a room the camera kind of pulls back you can see a bit of the interior and multiple characters but far more often than not you're squeezing one or two characters in the frame right right and it gives that sense again of that oppressiveness that claustrophobia and you know another thing you see throughout the film and i think is really what um, oh, who sing? Who is it? The uh, oh, fuck. Sings a song. People make the world go round. You know, people make the world go round. Mm-hmm. It's a soul song from the seventies. Anyway, great song. That's you're really, you're asking know. me. Yeah, it's too early for me to. Uh, I don't have any rapid recall on that right now. But uh, <laughs> in this, it's <laughs> the euro. The euro makes the world go round. All you see is constantly in every scene, someone in the background, and not not the point where they bang, they bang you over the head, but money, 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 man. People counting money, people getting money. It's just the the um, acquisition of and the counting of money, mm-hmm. right? Because that's what it all comes down. To. That's why they're doing this, right? Yeah. Um, Sadly, it's true. Yeah. Um, yeah, so we talked about the ghettos and they're really post valley and how it's very post-apocalyptic and fascinating cinematically. And you just, you kind of see even like the seed being planted in Toto. He's like a, an errand boy for his mom who, he, he, you know, seems like she runs like a kind of kind of corner store. And he see, he's getting tips and he sees the other kids kind of running drugs and being kind of watch outs for the drug dealers and stuff. And 
it comes that thing of like, I can make this jump change or I can make some real money. And boys are impressionable at that age, you know? Oh yeah. It's, uh, yeah. They can look at, you know, they, they see people as heroic almost. And, you know, it's, it's, it's a dangerous world, right? I mean, it's what you always worry about. You know, I, I think about that now as a dad, you know, cause I, you know, I got in with the wrong kids for a little while. Sure. Yeah. And, um, you know, I was told not to, but you know, I kind of looked up to the wrong kids, you know, and, uh, Luckily, I I figured it out on my own. But you know, you kind of hope that that you know, as a as a parent now, you kind of hope that that doesn't happen. But kids are easily susceptible to that kind of stuff. I don't I don't think films and art cause that. I think uh, society causes that. You know, because if you aren't paying attention to your kids and you see the people they're hanging out with, you know, you get that's where you got to pay attention, in my opinion. So don't worry about so much what they're watching and what they're doing with the free time, but. You need to make sure that, you know, they're not hanging out with the kids that are hanging out on the corner, you know? <laughs> no, exactly, man. Exactly. And it's a very slippery slope and an easy one for kids to go down. Mm-hmm. Um, I th- there's a lot of scenes in this film looking at it now through a critical eye. I've only seen it the once before. Um, how uh, Corona, whose new film, Reality, you and I both talked about really high up the list. It comes out on DVD and Blu-ray, I think, in a few weeks. But how he plays with our expectations. Um, yeah. One of the early scenes is there's an old man who's talking about money and how is he supposed to live and this and that. And you think he's being kind of shook down in a big way, but he's being brought money. Like he, he's actually a, a criminal. Yeah. So you just don't think, Oh, it's not what it appears to be. And there's mm-hmm. a lot of moments like that. I think there's a moment when the garment maker is approached by a man who's very soft focused to the point where you can't determine his ethnicity and you would take for granted he's Italian because he's speaking Italian relatively well. He's over enunciating things, but he's speaking Italian relatively well, at least to my pretty untrained ears. Um, and, uh, he comes further into focus and you finally see it's, it's a Chinese man, right? Again, it's that thing. There's these several little moments of, of subtly done, but these moments of great playing with our expectations of what we think we're going to see unfold or what, what this person is or what they mean. Right. So, um, and even just the, the commentary on immigration in Italy, um, tons of Chinese in, in, in Italy, tons. And you see it touched on here. And another thing you see touched on, which the, uh, the film Terra Firma, uh, Italy's entry to the Oscars for last year, which I'm going to probably check out in the next couple of weeks, deals with is North African immigration. And they're just flooding into Italy. Um, and you see some African immigrants in this with, uh, was it Marco? And I can't remember the other guy's name. Is it Chiro? I can't remember. But, uh, I, didn't, see they were, I didn't even know that the Chinese had, uh, there were so many Chinese people in, uh, Italy. I well, you know. wouldn't, we, we, you know, it's very much a local thing of problem. Again, we all have a notion of what Italy is, mm-hmm. you know, and, uh, just like in Germany, there's tons of, um, Turkish people, certain um, countries have immigrants that tend to flock to other countries, right? right? right. Um, but yeah, there's tons of Chinese, man. Tons and tons and tons. And I've seen them more and more and more in Italian film as of late. And North Africans, the same thing. Tons and tons of them. And it's weird to see the North Africans speaking Italian in this. Because mm-hmm. there's a drug deal where they get ripped off. And it's, uh, yeah, it's crazy. Um, and I just, I love the, 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 observational tone of the cinematography it, it does feel very documentary like in it's hard to to do something like this 
because I think we very much we observe our characters. We never judge our characters. Yeah. Which is a hard thing to pull off. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right? For you to remain in the middle and observational and not critical. Um, I like kind of the, the, not film within a film, but the way that crime and pop culture has influenced some of these characters. Like there's the great scenes of the two young guys where they're, they're wearing Hawaiian shirts. They're quoting Tony Montana. And <laughs> you think yeah. of the meta thing going on there. And it's, it's, it's a, a film 30 years old, 35 years old. You know, wow. It's, it's, I can't believe it's that old. Um, yeah, it's insane. That was made by an Italian American about, a Cuban immigrant coming to America and making his name through the ranks and here to bring it full circle back to Italy. These, um, these boys from Naples romanticizing this and quoting it, uh, no end and wanting to live that life. It's, mm. it's interesting. It is. Uh, um, a very sweaty film. <laughs> yes. Very sweaty. And, it almost feels like a lot of characters are covered in. I know this sounds awful, but it almost feels like they're covered in manure at some point. You know, people yeah. are just dirty. It's a very good. I would agree. There's a layer of grime and grit. Yeah, yeah. It, just, it seems. It just seems like the characters are filthy. It, it it felt like it could be like a smelly, a smelly film. To be honest, a smelly <laughs> shoot. <laughs> it could be a smelly shoot. Mm-hmm. And uh, no, but I think that's a good, that's a testament to Garon's filmmaking, though, because it it, it feels very raw. Mm-hmm. Oh, it does. It very much feels very raw. Um, I'll tell you, man, there's a scene with the Cervillo character where he's scouting out a new place to dump stuff. Man, that's got to be the fucking most majestic looking. And I don't mean majestic in any other sense than how large it is. That that quarry, oh, yeah. how, deep, how deep down that quarry is. Yeah, it's gigantic. Holy fuck. I mean, it's huge. Yeah. Huge. Yeah. Um, so yeah, and there's a lot of the stuff like that, just the intention to to show people in the surroundings they live in, I think is is really well done in this too. Um, oh, just the bombed out apartments in this, or like worn down, run down apartments. Not bombed out in a literal sense. It, it's very reminiscent of the '70s New York or '70s Harlem, where you just saw rubble. It's akin to that in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Just the the kind of worn out, broken down state. Uh, I think too, just some of the, the ways that it looks, it looks at how this is choking every level of, of people and, and the economy. There's a great exchange between Tony Cervillo's character and the father of the boy who he's training or the young man, I should say that he's training. Um, it's a, it's a really great, subtly done scene because we see that the the father they're talking at an airport i believe they're going to venice or, or something they're, they're you know blah 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 and the father seems very much like a good man a kind man a nice man but he's very naive and he just wants what's best for his son he says you know i i worked at the hospital and i just can't get my son a break and uh you get the sense that he's very much a naive a naive kind man and it's just like well you know that's why you're not going to get anywhere. He's not going to get anywhere. He's kind of as far as he can go. And it's that, that age old thing of, in you know, in the economy, who, you know, not what, yeah. you know. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, I found his character, you know, I wish they would have had a little bit more with his character, but, uh, mm-hmm. I did, you know, I, 
I related to his character because, you know, I think to myself, you know, if I was, if, if our society was in this situation, you know, and there was no work and everything else, you know, I'd be so proud if my son, you know, got chosen essentially to potentially have a quote unquote legit career. Mm-hmm. And, um, but yet there's this, you know, bittersweetness to the whole thing. And I really like the, uh, you know, not to get ahead of ourselves, but and I won't say anything about it, but the scene between Cervillo and, and that character, that son, uh, is pretty amazing as far as acting goes and, oh, yeah. and morality goes. It's pretty amazing. It is an amazing scene, and there's so much going Mar- uh, Yeah, Marco and Chiro were the two boys, and I can't remember the young man's name now, but, yeah, it's an amazing scene for sure. And I think it's it works on a, at a literal level, and it also works very much in terms of reading the subtext of what that scene is, is well, saying, and, and from a metaphorical standpoint. Yeah, because well, I mean, Cervillo's character says a, a line of dialogue, which I won't re- repeat here because it gives away some of the things in the film, but yeah. he says something that's very much... Uh, a microcosm of the society itself and and, mm-hmm. and it's a microcosm of worldwide society not just italy yeah and uh it's it's a poignant statement and mm-hmm. uh sadly uh you know a true statement in my opinion and uh but it's a powerful statement as well i mean it's it's a, it's a reality that you know most of us don't want to believe but unfortunately it's there and it's you see where Cervillo's character is coming from. And it's pretty. It's pretty amazing. And this one line of dialogue, almost the whole film, is summed up in some way. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely, it is. And yeah, it's a really sad scene. And you know, it, it, there's a lot going on there. So I, I won't spoil it for anyone. But I love that scene. Uh, mm-hmm. Inevitably, you know, one of the mo- one of the most iconic scenes, and it's featured on the cover of this, is uh, with the two boys in their underwear on kind of the, this swampy beachfront shooting off these guns into the yeah. water. Yeah. And uh, it's so funny because there's been times where we've been at the beach with William and Brayden and we didn't bring a bathing suit, so we just told William to go in his underwear. Yeah. And every time now I see him in his underwear on, like, the beach, I think of <laughs> those shots of those two boys or young men shooting off these guns to the point where I've taken pictures and I'm like, man, this reminds me of of Gamora, you know, the way it's, the camera's kind of behind him and it's kind of shooting us back as he's walking towards the water. Yeah. So it's funny how sometimes that can happen, but, um, what else do we got here? (laughs) Oh, just the track suit has very much replaced the three piece suit. Oh yeah. The good old track suit. Yeah, man. You know, even at night, the color palette here is this kind of sickly yellow or green on the buildings. Yeah. Which I think they, they, they crank up a little bit to kind of convey. It's that Italian uh, film thing of, you know, like uh, Antonioni and other filmmakers did where people's surroundings are so important to their characters, their motivations, and and they're speaking to what they are. And this film is just very rotten and sickly in some of the nighttime building shots. Uh, A great scene too, with the, the debt collector or the, not even the quite debt collector. I think it's the opposite. He's well, he does some kind of collecting stuff, but he's also a very bookish kind of man. And, uh, scene with him and he goes to kind of, Things are escalating between two different clans, and uh, he goes to kind of beg out of, of having any involvement. And I really like that scene. Mm-hmm. 
I thought that was really good because he's like, I'm not equipped for this. I'm an old man. I've collected money for you. I've, I've paid money out for you, but and the guy says, sorry, you know, we're all part of the war. I may kill people and you may deal with money, but you know, we're both part of this war. Yeah. So just a kind of grim reminder with the whole film's a grim reminder really, but well, I think it's interesting that there's actually like three or four of these quote unquote bookish type characters. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, again, I think, uh, Garon's trying to show the layers of how this stuff has permeated the, the society. Yeah. Because, you know, you always have, somebody has to manage this stuff. That's right. You know, just like in real life and jobs and, you know, you have managers and a manager's job is just to manage things, make sure things keep running. Mm-hmm. And, uh, these guys just make sure things keep running. That's right. And, uh, they're typically these characters or people that you wouldn't think would be involved in that type of, uh, behavior but you know they they are and underneath it all it's just as dark on their end even though they might feel it a little bit more or maybe they might you know you get a sense with some of these characters in this film that they're tired you know that they're very weary yeah yeah, they're wore out they just you know they don't like what they've turned into but they you know that this is what this is how life is this is where they've gotten so resigned to their fate mm -hmm. and uh so but, you know, of course, it still doesn't excuse it. It's just, it is what it is. But it's interesting to me that, you know, that he focuses a lot on that because you get the Shavillo character who's content with it. You got um, the the uh, the collector who obviously is having some real issues. The garment maker who is almost, you know, it's to the point where he's almost destroyed. And it's a heartbreaking scene. For me, it's heartbreaking. I agree. When he comes home and he <clears throat> sees his wife and his little baby girl sleeping in the bed. Mm-hmm. Little moments like that, you realize, you know, he's just trying to provide. Yeah, he's not trying to, to you know, do anything wrong. I mean, he, he just wants to provide for his family. Yeah, and, you know, he's he's up against the wall. Yeah. And, you know, it, it, it's, it's interesting to me, you know, what we consider crime and what we don't consider crime. And, you know, it, it gets into a very complicated and gray area when we start to talk about providing and taking care of our own and, and things and, and, you know, kind of going circumventing the system a little bit and all these things. So, you know, it, it's like I say, that's where the film gets really dense because it, it's showing you all it's showing you five different sides of criminal behavior in a way. And it lets you decide you know, where, where do you stand? You know, because without fail, there's something people do every day. That's, you know, by the, by the strict laws of black and white, you know, morality, there's probably things we all do to some degree. That's a little immoral. So, well, that's the thing, but this film, there's no black and white. Yeah. It's exactly. all, it's everything in this film is gray. Yes. Everything. And that's the thing it does so well is it lets you kind of decide and, it shows the motivations and justifications for these characters. It doesn't defend these characters, but it doesn't show a callous disregard for humanity just for the sake of wanting to do crime. Even the young guys, Marco and Chiro, they, their mentality is very much um, that of the young men. I want what's mine. I'm going to take what's mine. Uh, they, they don't seem like, well, they do certainly some very unsavory things, but you don't get the thing of, these two guys are monsters. No, they just seem like these young, naive boys who have access to things that are young men that young men should never have access to. 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that's why, you know, making blanket statements like, you know, these kids, you know, we, we, we talked about this before, you know, sticking kids in jail for mm-hmm. bad decision making. Is that really, you know, when the that, system's set up to fail them or the yeah. society is. Yeah, once we put them in, you know, we got to realize we're not doing anything but creating more criminals. We're, we're especially here in the States. I, I can't speak for every other country, but I can speak for this one that uh, our system, the way it's set up, is we're creating the same kind of behavior we're trying to stop we're actually mm-hmm. you know we're, we're actually creating it on a bigger level and it's just it, it's basically a sweeping under the rug you know that's all it is i mean it really is i mean it's the it's telling your son to clean up his room and he sticks everything in under the under the bed <laughs> you know yeah that, that that's that's all we're doing in the states when it comes to crime you know you know we're we're, we're just you know it's the thing you know we're locking people up for you, know, you can get locked up in this country. You, you I think you stay, I think you posted on uh, Facebook that you can get locked up in this country for being a, you know, a whistleblower more than you can yeah. for being the actual person who committed the crime. Yeah, it's unbelievable, man. It's unbelievable. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, and we'll get into the scene. This we talked about with the roadside with uh, Servillo's character and the other guy, the young man, but. Um, I think that it's one thing I take away, you know, you look at the end of the film, and just the whole film, the film as a whole, the police are really not in the film. I mean, you know, most crime films, as it were, would focus on the rise and fall of a crime family or criminals within a crime family or the police trying to catch them. The police are only in a few scenes, and it's just to kind of show up at the 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 neighborhoods to, you know, try to make a bust or something, but... It's just people living their lives where they live, and that's all this film is. It's no good guys, no bad guys. Uh, as Groni says on the disc, he says that there's people living in the jungle or trying to live in the jungle. So, yeah, that's uh, those are all my notes. All right. All right, like I said, yeah, the film has eluded me for five years. It's um, insane. Uh, I just can't believe that. Uh, but I got to say, you know, it was great to finally sit down and watch it. Uh, the location itself is a star in this film. Uh, it's just amazing. It's one of those things where you see it and you're like, wow, I can't believe this, you know, this exists. I mean, you know, it's one of those things. It just yeah. <laughs> blows your mind, you know. Uh, I really like that initiation scene with the... Uh, oh, with the kids? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's I didn't an, even mention that. Yeah, that's an interesting uh, scene, to say the least. I'm like, what the hell is going on here? And I'm like, holy shit. Talk about, you know, initiation, you know. Pretty rough. I'll, I'll I'll leave it to our viewers to uh, and our listeners to check it out and see what they think. Um, <clears throat> you know, I, I like you know all the statements that are being made, but I also like that like you know Garon's not he's not condemning one side or the other. That he's mm-hmm. staying gray as well, and that he's just stating that this is the way things are. Um, you know, in any society, there's always going to be crime. There's always going to be people that want to. There's always going to be people that want to fight it, and there's always going to be. There's always going to be crime. You're just never going to. Ex- you're never going to escape it because there's always going to be, be people that want to circumvent the system. So, and it usually starts with youth, uh, sadly. And if and if it doesn't start with youth, it usually has the older generation exploiting the youth. So yeah, you got to get your soldiers somewhere, right? That's right. So you know that kind of goes to the you know the kids with the Scarface fascination. Uh, that's not, you know, that's how, you know, as we know, that's not highly unusual even here in the States and North America or anywhere, not just the Scarface thing, but the gangster uh, fascination in general. I mean, look at the whole Aaron Hernandez thing going on right now. Oh, goodness, yeah. I mean, it's just really, it's it kind of boggles the mind 
how the the I don't know how to say it, but how the, the two have kind of crossed over into each other. You know, where being successful in a professional sense still doesn't mean that these young people aren't still fascinated with, you know, people like Tony Montana, Tony Soprano. I'm trying to think of any other Tonys. Tony Cervillo. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Tony Orlando. Uh, <laughs> Tony Monero. Yeah, Tony Monero. There you go. Uh, but, uh, you know, the 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 world is is, is it's kind of gotten in this in this gray area itself where crime is and it's always been this way we've always as a society had a fascination with criminals that's that's nothing new um i don't think our art and our uh you know our creative stuff is actually responsible for that video games and all that blah blah i never believe any of that shit i think all that's that's all you know, upper crust people trying to find an easy blanket statement to make that other than the fact that they're not responsible for why, you know, people do what they do. That That's all that is, you know, to me. I mean, they say, oh, it's video games, it's video games, it's movies, it's it's books. It, well, they never say books, oddly, because they don't read. But it's, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's this, it's drugs, it's this, it's that, you know. And, and I'm always like, no, what it really comes down to is it's people. And, you know, it's, it doesn't have anything to do with the art. And all that stuff. Don't get me wrong. I mean, I'm not going to subject myself. I'm not going to sit around with my son and we're, you know, we're going to pound some brewskis when he's six watching a Serbian film. You know, <laughs> there, there, there is, you know, there is a line that you definitely don't cross. But, but at the same time, you know, art is not responsible for what you know kids and people become. People are responsible for what kids and people become, and it's easy to blame shit, point fingers, but it's a bunch of bullshit, in my opinion, obviously. I mean, you know, I know you and me, we both grew up uh, watching stuff that uh, we shouldn't have watched at our age, and well, I think we turned, we turned out pretty good. Yeah, we sure did. Uh, yeah. But I think it's because we had parents who said, you know, who were there with us. You know, they weren't just saying, here, you know, here's here's a gun, go outside and shoot it. If you hit anybody, oh, well, that's their fault. That's uh, right. You know, just, you know they, they were there with us. I, you know, as, as much as I could rail against my growing up you know i always know you know like you know my mom would watch death wish with me yeah that seems bizarre now in today's society but you know my mom would explain to me you know, this is entertainment this is not reality this is not the real, way the real world is you know i wanted the world to be like death wish 3 <laughs> but <Yeah. laughs> but uh, you know it's not really like that <laughs> there's not a you know geriatric man running around shooting people and <laughs> the rocket launcher in an apartment <laughs> yeah yeah, <laughs> but you know that—that's the thing. You know, I, I hear this all the time. You know, explain things, talk to your children, talk to your people, talk to your family, talk to you know. Nobody talks, and that's—I think that's a problem. So, this film, you know, brings up a lot of political views, and it, it really touched me on a very political and personal level because what I saw was, you know, even though it's it's dealing with Naples, I saw you know a societal fault that we that, that all society has. And that's that we sometimes get so you know engulfed in taking care of our own or or providing for our own and everything else. We sometimes forget that we're exploiting those that are less fortunate. And uh, I think that's really a powerful statement. I think that's probably the most powerful statement of this film. And uh, where Garone really hits it right on the head is that for me. Oh, I agree. Uh, yeah. And uh, you know, I'll go ahead and say this line of dialogue, and then and you know, I didn't want to say it, but I'm going to go ahead and say it because I think this this line of dialogue. Is is very poignant in in the whole film and the whole statement that Garone's trying to make, and that statement is, 
And I quote, we solve a problem created by others. And there's always going to be a problem solver. And that's how society functions. There's always got to be a problem solver to solve a problem. And if you think about it, like, you know, the world is supply and demand. So there's always going to be somebody that has to create, solve, create that problem and solve that problem. Be be it crime, be it whatever. Yeah, absolutely. I was going to say the the genius thing about that scene and that relationship with those those two characters is we, the audience, are very much the wide-eyed, respectable, morally grounded young man, right? Mm -hmm. We're him. Right. And at that point, he makes a choice to do something, and that's when you get that line. And it's... It is very much a genius moment because it's almost like if you look at the get the convention of police films with the wide-eyed, impressionable rookie and the veteran who's seen it all. And it's like, pal, when you've been doing this for 20 years, or come talk to me in 20 years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Let's see, you're not, you know, when he says, you know, you're not better than me, you'll you'll see. Yeah, yeah, exactly. When life beats you down, well, you know. Yeah. You'll see where you stand. Yeah. You know. And, you know, and... Well, I don't want to get into that because I think it will give away some of the things in the film. But that's really all my notes. I think we've uh, thoroughly discussed this one. This one, like I said, this one was this one is deep for conversation, and we could probably talk about it for another hour, easy, because I think it deals with a lot of stuff. Not just like I said in Italy, but uh, in the world itself. I mean, I think it deals with a lot of the issues we see worldwide, mm-hmm. and how sure. how crime and and greed permeate all societies. Yeah. No. Definitely. Um, well, my make or break is a scene we've already talked about several times. It's the scene with the peaches. Uh, yes. <laughs> so I forgot, I forgot the peaches. <laughs> that's that's the, really the thing that kind of the heartbreaking thing of amongst there was a gesture made and I I love that it's the peaches that pushes Roberto too far. Yeah. Well, me too. But but because I think it's what was behind the gesture. Exactly. Right? Exactly. It's it's that little moment of humanity that he feels is lost mm-hmm. and that pushes him too far. Love that. Love yeah, that. no, it's amazing. It's it, just, it, really... it wasn't any of the moments before that, even though you could see parts of it bothering him, but yep. then it gets to the peaches and you got to see the movie to know what we're talking about, but it gets to the peaches and that tells Roberto, fuck this. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, my empathy is groaning <clears throat> for him okay. to pull this together. We should say this was adapted from a book. The writer Saviano is it? I can't remember his first name now. Uh, he's he's been living in Rome. He can't really go to Naples. It's not a good place for him to be. So yeah, he's, yeah, to, yeah. he's kind of been pushed out of there, hasn't he? Yeah, he's had to kind of move around with a bodyguard and stuff. Um, That's also sad in its own right. It is terribly sad. Uh, as it's not even like he casts a real um, scornful or critical eye i mean it's more observational right but yeah. he's still you know isn't welcome um my score is an 8.75 out of 10 nice it's a film that i know some people has left them cold but i think they're, they're like you you were saying and i agree wholeheartedly with you it's a very dense film that rewards rewatches not just in a cinematic sense but just in terms of the little things that it does i mean it's certainly it's a you know especially when you watch the interview with him on the disc he is a filmmaker who's aware of his craft and is good at his craft. And there's specific intent with right down to the little details of the film with him cinematically. But just the way he's able to pull together the culture of the of the uh, of Naples into the film, the culture of the country for the technique of the film technique that he uses. So 
really applaud him for that. But yeah, my score is an eight point seven five. It's uh, I thought I think it's it's an amazing film and, and a really great modern look at organized crime. Yeah, I think uh, me and you are on the same page on this one. All like up and down. My fa- my make or break is also the scene between uh, Seville and Roberto. Oh, you know we should have opened the review with if this was our second review. Yeah. Uh, President's United States of America peaches. <laughs> yeah, okay, okay. I might be able to, I might be able to punch that in. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, that's a great and powerful scene, and it, it's one of those scenes that sums up this you know long and dense film. I mean, this film is 137 minutes long, so it's it's a deep film, it's a long film. Um, but I think you know the statement that you made also as well that the. the, the it is a film that rewards rewatches, but I don't know how many times I would rewatch it. Like often. No, it's not. A, it's it's see, that's the thing. It's it, this is a bit of a um, a contradictory statement, but it's a film that um, rewards rewatches, but isn't it isn't a rewatchable film? And I don't mean that as a criticism of the film. Yeah. Because it's not like a really stylish pizzazzy film. Yeah. But I think if you were to watch it every you know two three four five years, let's say. Yeah you could uh, glean more from it and see the kind of deep ripples of it or what's going on in the film. Right. It's not one of those films where if you, you know, if you have a bunch of buddies over, you say, Hey dude, you know, I saw this great film, Gamora, let's sit down and watch it. <laughs> it's, it's not, it's not a beer and pizza movie at all. No, it's not. And it, it, even then it's not, it's not like if me and you got together, you know, and yeah. you knew that I like these kind of films and I knew you like these kind of films. I still don't think it's that kind of film. I think it's a film no. that you almost have to watch. I think I think it's a very personal film. Like it's a very yes. it's a very one to one experience. Agreed. And, and you uh, have to internalize mm-hmm. what you see and how you feel about it before you externalize it. Yeah. I think uh, Zom and Loaf would like this a lot. As a matter of fact, oh, big time, man. Yeah, they should big definitely time. do it at some point in time because this seems like the kind of film they could really have a long discussion on. I agree. I would love, love, love to hear them review it. I yeah. think they would review the hell out of it. So, mm-hmm. yeah, be interested to hear John's thoughts, especially, but uh, Loaf as well. Especially on the mustachios, uh, <laughs> and the lack of Taco Bell in Naples. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, but my MVT is also Garoni or Garone or Macaroni or whatever you want to call it, <laughs> Macaroni. Uh, oh. <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, it's a, it's a great achievement, and I can't wait to see his next films as well. I mean, you've talked about. I've posted the trailer before on our Facebook group about how excited I am to see it because it kind of deals with. Uh, reality television and celebrity and and things like that and kind of his take on it. So I'm sure it's going to be biting, to say the least. Oh, because the TV culture over there. I mean, their former prime minister was the owner and ran the the biggest television network in Italy. So It'll be interesting. (laughs) Yeah. Very much so. And my score is just below yours, 8.5 out of of 10. And I think this is the point two five for me is the fact that it is a long and dense film and – the rewatchability is not strong as far as you know. As you know, I watch this now. I probably entertainment. Value. Yeah, I probably won't watch it again for like ten years, but the film will stick with you. I promise for yeah. for the majority of your life if you see it. It's a, it's a it's a strong strong film. So definitely check it out. And uh, yeah, it looks good on blue too. Should be said. And I think that even if you don't rewatch the film, this being a Criterion disc. There are a lot of really great supplemental materials you could go back and rewatch, including a one-hour making-of documentary, mm-hmm. without ever having to revisit the film if you didn't want to. I would definitely put it in uh, your collection. That's my recommendation. It's, it's, it's a buy, yeah. Yeah, it's a buy, no doubt. All right, we're going to take a short break, come back and talk about a film that's very similar in tone, uh, Ninjas 3, The Domination.
I think Furstenberg was going for the same thing. All right, we'll be back right after this. Hey, it's Rob St. Mary from the Projection Booth. And, you know, I want to tell you about a guy, kind of humble guy, I guess, my podcast partner. That's right, he has a new book out. His name's Mike White, and it's called Cinema Detours. The guy's so humble, he won't even bring it up on the show. I don't know what that's all about. But anyway, just want to say Cinema Detours got a chance to take a look at it, read through it, and it's kind of fun. I mean, you have these reviews for movies that you've probably seen before and it's like chatting with an old friend and then there's the movies that you haven't seen but you got to add to your list and hopefully get to see before you die thanks a lot mike for telling me about all these movies that i got to see now but really ultimately why i'm coming to you about why you should pick up cinema detours either at amazon.com or for your kindle or you can go over to projection-booth.com and pick it up as well is because you see mike's wife told me to do this you might not know this but mike has 37 children And he needs the money in order to take care of them. 37 kids, can you imagine? So Cinema Detours, projection-booth.com. You can always get it at Amazon, either in paper form or for your Kindle. So check it out. It's Mike White, Cinema Detours. And uh, now I know why I don't get paid for this podcast. All right, everybody, welcome back. Okay, so our next film is the uh, Shot Factory, Scream Factory, or whatever you want to call it, release of uh, Ninja 3, The Domination. Now, I had talked about in the past how we might cover this as a trilogy and stuff, but we still got the double deuce option open. But this is the uh, Blu-ray release of a film that I'll honestly say that I never thought would ever see Blu-ray release here in the States. <laughs> well, it never even saw D- – correct me if I'm wrong, listeners, but I don't even think it's – Saw Light of Day as a DVD release. Yeah, I don't know if it did either, to be honest with you. I don't think it did. Because a lot of us were running around with HD rips <laughs> of uh, this from like some network. Yeah, 
Yeah, yeah, because that was the only way it was available for a long time. Spe- right? Speaking of which, when are these one of these motherfucking companies going to put a rad on blue? Man, <laughs> yeah. I love rad. I know yeah. you do too, man. We got to see rad on blue. Like, come on, show factory, get with it, yeah, or right. someone. Rad and thrashing and all those films, man. Just, I yeah. BMX Bandits on blue, though. There we go. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> All right. So uh, do you want me to synopsize this one? Or? Yeah, cause I, uh, I can. I okay. can have it here. Right. Uh, actually, this one's pretty good. An evil ninja attempts to avenge his death from beyond the grave by possessing an innocent woman's body. Yes. There we go. And I love that Shokasugi's IMDb pictures him slashing a man's throat. <laughs> In a ninja outfit. <laughs> he, he has to have a ninja outfit on. Shokasugi without a ninja outfit is like, you know, it's like bad form. <laughs> he knows where his bread is buttered. Yeah. It's always amazing to me, Shokasugi, like international superstar, but he's only been in like 20 films. <laughs> and most of them were ninja films. I mean, that was his, that was his thing, right? But yeah, yeah very, uh, very interesting. Yeah, yeah this... Uh... His film debut, though, and an interesting bit of weirdness is, you know, his first film was The Godfather Part Two. Figure that one out. <laughs> He's a passerby in coat with cap pulled down, uncredited. <laughs> that's his first credit. <laughs> Figure that out. Yeah, that's yeah. crazy, man. Oh, his first three films: Godfather Part Two, Bruce Lee fights back from the grave, and the Bad News Bears go to Japan. Wow. Yeah. So, Shokasugi. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, and it was nice to see him. You know, recently in Ninja Assassin, even though I know that film kind of split people, but. It was nice to see him again. Uh, you know, I wish he'd work more. I really do wish he'd work more because I do think he has a presence that's, uh, you know, he has this natural presence on film that's uh, undeniable. Let's put it that way. Yeah, like gravitas. All right. So what they didn't mention in the uh, plot synopsis was is that she's not only an innocent woman, but she's a telecommunications worker and an aerobics instructor part time. So uh, this is definitely the eighties. It's <laughs> no doubt about you got, it. Yeah. You got it. Yeah, this is the eighties, but it does star the the wonderful Lucinda Dickey, um, who has one of those filmographies. Now, what what did we say that we were talking on the phone the other day? She's done six films, and she has this like John Cazale, <laughs> which we can't take credit for. Someone in our group yeah. brilliantly um, coined the phrase. She's the John Cazale of of. Uh, uh, Kind of like, exploitation film, yeah, kind of like exploitation films. Yeah, she's definitely like you know, like the the canon girl in some ways, as far as quality goes. All killer, no filler. <laughs> yeah. So just to read Lucinda Dickey's credits off, she did. Uh, she was her first appearance was in Grease Two. She played a girl greaser. I'm sure she's just like one of the background dancers and stuff. But then she was in Breaking. Now, an interesting bit of behind the scenes. Uh, she actually was in Ninja Three first, but Breaking was released first. Ninja 3 was actually her first lead role, but uh, Breaking was so popular and so quick to get out and stuff, and it was a hit that, uh, as you know, I mean, Breaking 2 came out the same year as Breaking. That's how quick they were turning and burning on those Breaking films because it was a big oh, yeah. hit. And, uh, but her, uh, this is actually her first perf- uh, lead performance. It was Ninja 3, but Breaking came out actually first. Uh, you know. But she did Breaking, Ninja 3, Breaking 2, and Cheerleader Camp. <laughs> so, yeah, man. So for me, even going back to Grease 2, which I love, I mean, she's, you know, she was 5 for 5. Uh, oh, yeah. Personally, she did a, a uncredited appearance in a Perry Mason episode or TV movie. But outside of that, she has done nothing. She is, you know, uh, pretty much just a cult actress and she's not uh done much of anything she's been on the master of dance tv series uh recently as a judge but that's as much as she's ever done and uh it's a shame i i think she's i don't know if gorgeous is the word for lucinda dickey but i can definitely tell you that cute 
is definitely the word. She's fresh faced and cute. Absolutely. Yeah. She does have a great body on her though. I mean, it, yeah. it, it is a great body. I mean, she's got a, just a rocking bod, as they say. Yeah, man. As Shokasugi said when he called me the other day. <laughs> <laughs> oh, maybe I'm wrong when I say this, but I can't think of another film that opens with a golf course massacre. This opening is among the great openings. <laughs> yeah. I mean, can you can you think of any? I mean, I mean, you know, you're a big film uh, fan. I know you're. You know, me and you are golf course massacre. <laughs> they got to dig deep. I don't know. I can't think of one. Man. That's a deep cut right there, man. That's that's, yeah. that's tough. So yeah, if anybody can come up with one, I, I you know, I'll, I'll I'll make sure you're represented on the show in name and credibility because uh, that would be a tough one. But yeah, this opening is all action. Uh, from the get-go, it's pretty amazing. Um, <laughs> there's some moments that are pretty funny. I think they're inadvertently funny. One uh, uh, I'm thinking of is uh, when they pull up, once uh, some characters fall into like a little pond or a lake area that, that they, all the cops pull up. I love that they still manage to make sure the two cops on the golf cart pull up as well. Uh, yeah, yeah. That, that's pretty classic. <laughs> and uh, it's, got, it's got those great helicopter shots, those low-budget helicopter shots we talk about on the GGTMC where it's obviously shot in, like in a parking lot, you know, and, oh, yeah. from underneath. <laughs> <laughs> but there are some impressive stunts, you know, people hanging off helicopters and stuff. I mean, that, sh- that shit's dangerous, you know. I mean, every time, not, yeah. every time you see a helicopter in a film, I mean, if you're a film buff, you know that, you know, you always think about the John Landis incident. And how dangerous, you know, helicopters can be. And uh, this is a pretty crazy helicopter stunt, this and some of the other stuff that goes on, some of the jumps into the lake, um, uh, this pretty crazy stuff. And from what I understand, the stuntman, like I said, I listened to a little bit of the commentary. The stuntman, uh, uh, he did almost, you know, all those stunts. So, you know, he was talking about how crazy it was that to watch it finally because, you know, he's, He's the ninja, and then he's the cop, and then he's the ninja, one of the ninja and the cop, and then he's the guy jumping the motorcycle cop, and then he's the, the guy in the car jumping into the lake, and then, you know, then he's one of the cops that gets shot, and then he's one of the ninjas that falls down. <laughs> wow. So he, you know, they would, they would just, you know, low-budget film, you know, so they would just, you know, use him over and over and over again, just reshoot, reshoot, reshoot. Well, kudos to him. He did a great job. It's one of my favorite opening sequences in film. Yeah, yeah. Some of the dubbing in this film is as bad as dubbing gets. I mean, mm. I mean, it's it's Italian in some ways. I mean, it's Italian exploitation film in some ways. I mean, it really is. I mean, it's rough in spots. Uh, it yeah. just it, the voices match obviously, but I mean, it's just the sink is off or something. I don't know. It just yeah, there is a few moments where the sink is off. Yeah. I wouldn't even <clears throat> excuse me. I wouldn't even say Italy. Italy is usually pretty good about dubbing. It's more like uh, like Hong Kong or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's almost as bad. Yeah, it's almost as bad as like a really bad Hong Kong dub. Yeah. Almost to that level. Uh, is this ninja, though, the opening ninja scene, is he shot more than any other human being in the history of cinema? Maybe except maybe the Wild Bunch? I would say so. Yeah. I mean, he just, he takes it, man. Yeah, even Warren Oates was like, holy fuck. Yeah, lay off the guy. <laughs> Take it easy. Yeah, lighten up, Francis, as he would say. You know, in his stripes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I love that one of the cops, too, like the black cop, has like the cigarillo in his mouth. He's like biting down hard on. Like, what a cliche that is, you know? <laughs> what what a great visual pairing. We get um, the poor man's high tower with the Mexican Joe Spinell. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, so good. Oh, and I, I love the flashbacks when Dickie's possessed, when she doesn't quite know it. When it flashes back to like the the POV shot from the ninja's eyes of like these guys with like gnashed teeth shooting the shit out of them, <laughs> which it does. Slow-mo. It does a lot. Yeah, it does. <laughs> it flashes back a lot. <laughs> 
Yeah, because her her love interest in this, who is a bit of a wet blanket for me. Um, oh yeah, he's a wet blanket too, and he's also a wet bl- a hairy wet blanket. Let me add that. Jeez, man, everything from his back to his chest. He is there's Andy Garcia levels of body hair. Oh my god, <laughs> Jordan Bennett with the name Billy Secord. <laughs> wow, Officer Secord. Yeah, it's Jordan Bennett. Love you, Jordan, but uh, dude, you know might need to wax that shit. Yeah, he's really hairy, man. <laughs> I'm looking at his filmography right now, seeing what else he'd been in. Uh, ooh, he was in BJ and the BJ and the Barry played an angry terrorist. Oh, wow, Bert Rigby, you're a fool. <laughs> I don't even know what that is. Yeah, it looks like he didn't have a, you know, a deep long career. and storied career. Yeah, <laughs> him and Lucindy Dickey, either one, you know, but she's got the, obviously the more uh, uh, cult cred here. But uh, yeah, so she, you know. Not only is you know she dressed in aerobics gear. This this immediately made me think of this. But she's in aerobics gear at one point. She's playing a stand up arcade machine. I had to think this is like Rupert Pupkin's wet dream. I mean, this is well, like this is Brian Sauer's wet dream right here. It is totally his wet dream because <laughs> she's playing this game. I, I, maybe someone can answer it. Roop or someone called. I made a point to look for the name of it. It's called Bouncer. Yeah, I, th- I think it's a real game. I'm gonna look it up to double check. But I'm gonna look it up. But yeah, Bouncer is the name of the game. Well, this is see the genius thing Furstenberg did, and of course through Canon, was um, uh, combining the two big fads of nineteen the mid eighties aerobics and ninjas. Yeah, the only thing we didn't have was uh, some breakdancing in here. Like somebody didn't throw some cardboard down on the street and just start breaking, you know? Yeah, you, for sure. They, they probably tried to shoehorn that in, but it didn't feel organic. Not yeah. that this film is organic, but. Yeah. Bouncer is a real game. Uh, entertainment sciences manufacturer, 1984 uh, platformer. You know, deals with. Oh wow! So. <laughs> nice. Deals with the, the player controls a Mr. Clean-looking nightclub bouncer who must maintain order by throwing out unruly customers while keeping the other patrons happy until they leave. The name of the club is the Ritz. Nice. I want to play the bounce. I want maybe there be some uh, <laughs> some online version I can play. Looks yeah. like fun. Might be an emulation out there or something. Yeah, know. that's what I meant. That's what I was looking for, an yeah. emulation. No, yeah, it might be something out there. Sounds like both the Rupert's wet dream and a loaf, another loaf wet dream. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, Shokazuki coming strong, rocking the, rocking the eye patch, GGTMC style the embroidered eye patch at that. The Exactly, the embroidered eye patch with his, I mean, the, we, we talk about great hair in film, but we but <laughs> Kusugi doesn't get enough love for his mane. He's got an amazing head yeah. of hair. Yeah, he's got the kind of hair that, like, uh, off-screen fans are made for. Yeah, you know, man. You know, like Lucio Fulci would have loved having Kasugi in some film so he could blow some wind and some smoke in there. Oh, man. Yeah, his <laughs> hair is just majestic. <laughs> oh, man. So one of my favorite scenes in this film is is uh, when she gets a medical <clears throat> exam, we discover that she has great instincts and a preoccupation with Japanese culture. <laughs> 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 Which the doctor says there's nothing wrong with that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Oh, that's one of my favorite things in cinema ever. <laughs> that's a deep. That's some deep uh, medical examination there, man. Yeah, that's great. Oh, I know. Yeah, this, uh, the rapier sharp wit. Yeah, I can see, you know, James, I think his name is James Silky or something that wrote this. Uh, yeah, James R. Silk or Silky. Uh, I can see him writing that, saying, "Yeah, man, I got I got the line that sums us all up <laughs> in that's one it. in one in one uh, done." Now, we've had James Silky films on the film before on the show before. He actually is the screenplay writer for the Barbarians. So smooth as silk, yeah, smooth as silk, and he does have a GGTMC catalog to say the least. I mean, he's got uh, uh, this film, 
he did the uh, Brooke Shields film Sahara, which is very GGTMC. I've seen it before. It's got horse uh, horse bookholtz in it. Uh, Revenge oh, nice. of the Revenge of the Ninja. He wrote for Ninja Three, American Ninja, and King Solomon's Mines, which I believe has Henry Silva in it. I uh, think you're right. Uh, well, no, it's got Herbert Lom. I think he, uh, Silva was in the second one. There was a sequel, Alan Quartermain and the Lost City of Gold. I think uh, Silva's in that one. <laughs> yeah, I knew he was in one of them. Yeah, yeah, he's in that one. I'm right. And uh, but uh, yeah, Herbert Lom and John Reese Davies, Master Check Casher, is in. Uh, and master Pavarotti impersonator. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, but uh, yeah, I think I think King Solomon's Mines, if I'm not mistaken, is directed by no, it's Jay Lee Thompson. But maybe the sequel was. I thought Menachem Golem may have directed one of those, but he didn't direct either one of them. Huh? Crazy. I thought he did. Huh, well, there you go. Learn something every day. But yeah, the uh, and also it should be said that uh, to go one step further, James Silky also uncredited. And this is where it comes. It all comes to fruition in the world of film. Okay, James Silky, uncredited, but also a costume designer on the Wild Bunch. So there you go. There it goes. Yep. Also, James Silky, Jim Silky, a friend of Sam Peckinpah. So everything kind of coincides together. So there we go. That's very cool. Very cool. Um, but yeah, that preoccupation, preoccupation with Japanese culture. Nothing wrong with that. I love also that the cop decides he's going to get closer to her by going to her gym and working out in her class and that she's going to aerobicize him to death. But uh, he's going to shake her down in front of everyone, though. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, because, you know, when you have an aerobics class in a gym, all the men characters have to be, rape, you know, rapist. That's... I love that scene. It's so ridiculous <laughs> in that the men are so aggressively rapey. <laughs> they are. They're so horny. <laughs> And not just that, but the, the, the rest of the gym stands around and watches this poor woman get manhandled by four men. Like, there's like ten dudes in the crowd. It wasn't even like there was no guys and no one did anything. There was like ten, ten dudes in the crowd just watching her. She's about to get manhandled before the spirit of the ninja possesses her. It's so ridiculous, you know. Oh, when she picks up that bar mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and then she throws it and it like pins down four guys. <laughs> Yeah. And these guys earlier were lifting 600 pounds, you know, in the mm-hmm. gym and feeling rapey. But then she throws a bar and they fall down. That's it, yeah. Uh, now, it should be said another piece of trivia. One of the, the older cop that our uh, our buddy Sacord hangs out with, uh, the uh, the older man, uh, Case is his name, Long Sideburns, always smoking a cigar, older white guy. Now, that's Jake LaMotta's nephew, uh, John LaMotta. Uh, so, you know, the little bit of trivia there for everybody, but I've seen him in a few films and I always, I always recognize him because he does look like Jake LaMotta a little bit. That's cool. And, uh, it's very interesting because, you know, Jake LaMotta has done a few films too. I think Jake LaMotta is actually also, uh, I think, uh, uh, William Lustig's uncle, I think. Didn't we say that? Oh, wow. That's cool. I didn't know if I knew that. Yeah. Yeah. I think, uh, Lustig is related to Jake. And, uh, so it's very interesting the way the world, uh, the way the world works. <laughs> the, okay. the way it all kind of comes together. Yeah, I'm pretty positive that, uh, Lustig and, uh, Lamont are related. So, the Raging Bull and the, the Grindhouse Master. But anyway, Shokuzuki gets, uh, top billing in this, but he's really very support, uh, based in this. I mean, he's in this film like what? Maybe 20 minutes, 25 minutes? Well, yeah, he shows up towards the back end of the film, yeah. right? It's a 90-minute film. He probably shows up around the hour mark, maybe an hour and 10 minute, maybe an hour and five-minute mark. It's uh, in his eye-patched glory. But, yeah, before that, it's really the, the Dickie show, which, you know, I have no problem with. I'm yeah. sure yeah. no one else does either. She she quits herself as well as can be expected. Yeah, no pun intended, but during the aerobic scene, I had my Dickie out. 
<laughs> but you know. <laughs> but, Amazing. But also in a strange twist of fate, I also had it out during the James Hong scene, so I don't know what's going on there. <laughs> yeah, Hong cashing a check and in yeah. that great tradition of Chinese playing Japanese in yeah. cinema. Yeah, and, and putting fake moles on their face. What is up with oh, the fake what, what moles? A, what a, that was the most repulsive fake mole in the history of cinema. James Hong, it should be said, for those of you who don't know who he is, now he played uh, the main baddie in uh, in Big Trouble in Little China for most of our generation. That's what you're David Lopan. (laughs) David Lopan, one of the great character creations of all time. But David, uh, David, I almost called him David Lopan. (laughs) James Hong has a massive 380 film credits. I mean, we're talking about one of the most working actors of all time. William Smith ain't got shit on James Hong. I think James Hong, as far as I know, he might hold the record for any actor we've ever talked about with credits on the show. 380. You know, one of my favorite films of his. And in fact, it's my favorite Fuller film. I'm, I'm very lukewarm on Sam Fuller, it should be said. Yeah. Um, Naked Kiss and, and Crimson Kimono are probably my two favorites. Well, White Dog's good too, but, but James Hong's really good in White, uh, in White Kimono, in uh, Crimson Kimono. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I like him in that. He, you know, he's, he is the definition of a character actor for me because, yeah. I mean, every time he shows up, he he's very solid regardless of the quality of anything that's going on. Uh, even like in, in like the voice work he's done, he's got a very distinctive voice as well, it should be said. I wonder if him and William Smith ever did a film together. They had to have. They had to have. Man. Had to. I'm looking through his filmography. He's got films in there like Guns and Lipstick. Oh, and, he directed a few films. I know Miles. Yeah, like likes. Uh, oh, the, the, the Vineyard. The Vineyard is an infamous one. He directed. The Vineyard is. Uh, I think he wrote and directed. But he's been in everything. Tango and Cash. Uh, Jesus, Booker, the TV show we both watched. I think me and you both watched at one point. Little <laughs> Greco, little Richard Greco. Maybe. That's right, man. Revenge of the Nerds too. I mean, fucking just forget about it. I could, I could go. Well, I don't have time to scroll through this credit. These credits. But uh, yeah, he's been in everything. But yeah, yeah, had, you know, had to get the Dickey out there too. <laughs> but uh, yeah, you know, they were really trying to push Lucinda Dickey as a lead, and it's really a shame that she didn't really catch on because, uh, you know, outside of the fact that she has very '80s hair, like I said, she is very cute, and she has a charisma that is undeniable. And uh, you know, I love her in both the Breaking films. I'm sure I speak for you, and yeah. you know, she's great in those Breaking films. I I wish her hair was longer in the films, but I love her in them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, like I said, her hair is very. Very much an eighties thing. She got the skin. We're rocking the skinny headband, the aerobics headband in this one. Yeah, it's pretty nice. Um, I just, you know, I really enjoy the earnestness of this film too. Uh, the yeah. you know the laser effects, the smoke, oh, yeah. the dry ice, <laughs> the the floating sword. Yeah, I think yeah, the floating glowing sword. Uh, and, uh, you know, the fact that they, you know, to make her look like the possessed, uh, ninja, they make sure they put the same eyeliner on her eyes as they put on his eyes and pancake makeup. <laughs> yes. But, uh, yeah, I mean, the only thing this thing's really missing as far as exploitation films go is like excessive nudity. But other than that, it, it's violent, but it's not like gory. Um, yeah, there's a lot of cool, you know, throwing star deaths. There uh, is, uh, I mean, a plethora <laughs> Of if you if if you you want throwing star deaths, this is your film. Yes, and those other weapons, I can't remember what they're called, but they're like you know you know they're like really sharp jacks, like you know the game jacks. It's the ball. so funny <laughs> you call them jacks because 
there's a great death by Jax, or there's a, a maiming by Jax at one point. Whatever they're called. I call them Jax in my notes, too. Yeah, because I don't know what they're called. I don't know what that ninja weapon's called, but I've always kind of referred to them as Jax. Yeah, they are just like sharp Jax, for we call sure. Them ninja, ninja Jax, like a cereal or something. Yeah. I had a bowl of Ninja Jax this morning, man. I'm feeling it. Oh, not going to... Not gonna feel good coming out. No, probably not. Had a few, uh, had a few Jordan Bennett hairs in it too. <laughs> oh, gross! <laughs> Something chewy might have been that James Hong mole as well. Oh, cocoa puff. <laughs> that was a cocoa puff. <laughs> Ooh, man, that was a soggy cocoa puff though. <laughs> little cookie crisp on the <laughs> face there. <laughs> But yeah, this film is just this. This film is the definition of a fun movie. Yes. Um, to me, this is what a fun movie is um, because it's earnest, it's inept, it's would, entertaining. Would, the question is, would Zom like it? Uh, no. He would a three. He'd give maybe a three. I would guess for Zom. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Everything has to be Citizen Kane. Uh, <laughs> gonna give him a hard way to go. <laughs> Because I love that oh, bastard. Shit. Yeah, we're pulling your dick down. You'd like, yeah, you'd give it a four, maybe. Maybe, maybe you give it a four. Uh, but uh, I, I do quite enjoy the film. It is, it is great, and um, it, but it, it's it's great for what it is, right? I mean, it's it's like I said, it's the earnestness of the film. It's the way it's shot. It's the uh, it's the. Um, I don't know. It's it's hard to say. It has that certain genus quoi or however what is it? Je ne sais quoi. Je ne sais quoi that you know is, is unexplainable. But and it's not because it was hard to see or anything like this. This film I remember seeing it on cable when I was a kid, and I remember it was a total you know what the fuck type movie. Then mm-hmm. I was like, what the fuck, man? What did they do to the Ninja franchise? Because I was a fan of Enter the Ninja and Revenge of the Ninja, you know. So I was looking for some more Shokasugi beatdowns, you know, and uh, what I got was <laughs> something I wasn't expecting at all. Well, I like this better than the other two. Yeah. Oh, well, yeah, I do too. As far as entertainment value goes, yeah, this is the most rewatchable of the other two. I enjoy the other two, but uh, they're just just because they're ninja movies, and one obviously is a very strong curiosity because it has Franco Nero in it. But um, they're they're fun films, um, mm-hmm. but not nearly as fun as this one. I mean, this one, uh, you know, it goes. I would even say, in some ways, that like Pray for Death is more fun than like uh, Enter the Ninja. Yeah, Revenge of the Ninja is a little better, I think. Than, mm-hmm. but the, but but you know that's just me. Um, but you know I'm sure we'll get into that at some point because I'm sure we'll cover those two other two at some point in time. Yeah, I'd like to because I haven't seen them in years. So yeah, I'm sure we will. But uh, yeah, that's all my notes on uh, Ninja Three: The Domination. Yeah, so uh, I'll zip through here. We'll pinch a little for time, but I think I love that the film for the the credits opens opens with that old like. That classic Asian font that you see in like Chinese food restaurants from the seventies or sixties. <laughs> at this point, it's it's almost like a racist statement to have a yeah. film. <laughs> the font like that. All they needed That's to true. open the film was a gong. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they, they they do have some uh, mystical kind of music, which I actually kind I kind of like. Yeah. At the end of the film, with like the the sun setting, and yeah. I'm actually surprised it's a canon film. I'm actually surprised at some point in time somebody doesn't open a fortune cookie. Yeah, no kidding, man. <laughs> no kidding. The way they kind of mash up uh, Asian cultures. <laughs> yeah. Um, I this film in a lot of ways is. I mean, it's as GGTMZ as it gets, it, save for the fact that there's not enough sleaze. But 
Um, I would. I wish the Italians were still doing ripoffs, and they did like an Italian ripoff version of this because it would have been way sleazier. <laughs> yeah, it would have been amazing. <clears throat> yeah, it would have been amazing. Because one of the bodybuilders would have been George Eastman, right? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. It would have been incredible. Whenever there's a rapist you need for a, a film, why not cast George Eastman if you're in Italy, right? That's right, man. Uh, the uh, the golf course, yeah, it is really something to be seen. It's um. <laughs> I mean, it's got like a, a Johnny Quest rock cave. Um, he smashes a golf ball. <laughs> well, he smashes a golf ball, and then she crushes it like a pool ball. <laughs> and and he, he grabs a golf cart <laughs> and stops it like, like a cartoon, you know, and picks it up. It's hilarious. It is amazing. And there's just so, ninja stars penetrate so many different areas of the body in this in that scene, like sternums, hands, throats, eyes. Ninja stars are everywhere, man. And homeboy, like he, that was a slow ass golf cart, man. Like he sees people dying around him, and he still stays on this like ten mile an hour golf cart. <laughs> he drives through the carnage. Yeah, drives through the carnage. It was great. Oh. Uh, and I love the. Uh, there's one dude in the in that scene. He's on the golf course. He's like wearing a yellow cardigan. He looks like and he's like a yuppie Stephen King. Mm -hmm. He uh, he does a great d death dance. Yeah, They're really really funny. Um, I, I love the. The evil ninja does. He he does the Teen Wolf where he's surfing on the on the roof of the car, and he puts the fucking sword through it. It's pretty amazing, man. And uh, I'll tell you, there's a scene where that cop car, like, it gets a lot of air, man. It ramps into the drink, like that thing got air. Yeah, it did. And all the and the ninja scales a palm tree. <laughs> Like all of this happens before the eight minute mark of the film. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty amazing. I mean, it's pretty it amazing. Is. Smash golf balls, cars going into lakes. <laughs> the the porn equivalent of this would be is instead of working up to like a like a bukkake, like one guy at a time, they have thirty guys jerking off on the girl's face in the opening minute of the film. <laughs> That's what this is the yeah. like the cinematic equivalent of. Like they just pile everything on right yeah. away. Um. <laughs> There's a chopper explosion. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the the great bamboo blow dart thing. Uh, a bike, a, like a motorcycle ramp. Uh, pretty amazing. Um, what else? Uh, uh, I was thinking about some of the other dialogue. I think uh, Sakura at one time says, "I want to take you to my old neighborhood." There's somebody I want you to beat up for me, or something like that. Oh yeah, he's he's pretty weak, man. Yeah, he's, he, a he's weak sister for yeah, sure. Yeah, he's really trying to get in her pants, and I'm like, that's a bad line of dialogue. Of course, I guess it doesn't matter because Dickie's into hairy second-rate cops. <laughs> yeah, she is apparently, man. It's uh, yeah, but she's uh, she's a great hot telephone operator, man. Not even telephone, telephone pole worker, whatever. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's a, there's a bit of a, there's a metaphor there. <laughs> I think there is. She's scaling that point. I'll tell you, one of the transitional shots I really like. It's actually kind of clever. Is when it segues from the ninja boots to her work boots yeah, on the yeah, pole. Yeah, yeah, because those, those claws that those guys used to climb up those uh, telephone poles are very ninja-like. Yeah, they are. What isn't very ninja-like is the mushroom cut that the evil ninja had. What a bad head of hair he had, man. Yeah. <laughs> that was just terrible hair, man. Um, we get the, the, the convention of Hooker showing up in the police precinct early on where they're, they're pulling her in. So, yeah. you know, you know what this one feels like to me is uh, like this plot is so bonkers. It's almost like a, like an 80s, like, I don't know, <laughs> like an 80s Hong Kong film. Yeah, yeah. 
in that it's so bonkers. Like, it doesn't get more bonkers than this with American films. Um, <laughs> oh, I, I was, I, I was looking. I was looking through the quotes in uh, the IMDb. Uh, Sacord really has some of the best lines of dialogue in the film, though. Yeah, you know, for as weak sauce as he is, the limp noodle that Sacord is. I mean, he does have some of the best lines. And, but I was just reading some of them. That, that I'm, you won't go out with me because I'm a cop. The hell with you, lady. Yeah, like see, he has a weird passive aggressive approach to picking yeah. up women, but um, <laughs> it's great during the sequence with uh, like the aerobics class. They keep getting to the people working out in the gym, and I'm so surprised we didn't get like the fat dude in a half shirt on the Universal machine or that cinematic convention of the skinny nerd dropping the Olympic bar on his neck. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. We didn't get any of that. That's a shame. No. No, we just got the rapey, aggressive guys this time. Yeah, yeah, it's amazing. Um, I don't know about you, but when I go out and work out with my friends, the first thing I want to do is rape somebody as soon as I'm done. Yeah, gang rape. It's just, it's, it's so, uh, <laughs> it's so ridiculous. Then, it's so ridiculous. Um, man, Dickie coming on strong with Secor, man. She, sh- they get back to her apartment within five minutes. She's in the towel. Yeah, she don't waste any time, man. She's very aggressive. No. Um, I think some, on some of the commentary with Sam Furstenberg, he says that you know that, that he wanted to treat her more like a male character and stuff. But that don't make any sense because in the beginning she's more like a female character. She wants nothing to do with Accord, so I don't know what yeah. he's going for there. But uh. I don't know. But she must wear a shower cap because when she gets out of that, that shower, her hair is pretty dry. She has dry hair for an '80s film, doesn't she? Yeah, she really does. Even when she's working out, when she's doing the aerobic scene, she does. She's sweaty, but her hair is dry. When I think of Lucinda Dickey, I always think of those those leggings and those yeah. those aerobic suits because she wore those so much. I mean, you think about three films she did where she's wearing that almost constantly. Because in the breaking yeah. film, she's wearing those dancing leggings. Yeah, even when she's at home with like her rich parents in the breaking film, she's yeah. like, yeah, <laughs> sitting her around, leggings. Just sitting around the house. <laughs> yeah, she's just a small town girl on a Saturday night. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> who, has, who has exceptional extrasensory perception and a preoccupation with Japanese culture. With Japanese culture. <laughs> You know, I love Dickie, but I would have loved to have seen Phoebe Cates in this film. Oh yeah, that would have been awesome. That would have been awesome. I don't know. Uh, it would have been. It would have been nice to see some more of those '80s girls in the film altogether. Um, I, I like Dickie too, but uh, it sounds funny to say that. <laughs> <laughs> I got a feeling that might be a grab for another podcast. <laughs> Man, I really love Dickie. <laughs> nice. Oh shit! But anyway. Uh, but you know, I mean, she she has that same kind of that same kind of cuteness that like a Phoebe Cates had, you know, because Phoebe Cates, yeah. I never thought she was hot. I just thought oh, she was, I, I just thought she was unbelievably cute. And no, don't, don't get me wrong. I mean, I, I find that hot as well. But I mean, she was my first. She was my. This this is going to sound bad. She was my first human crush. <laughs> was she your first? I, was she your was she your first? Uh, loosen your dicky or you know? <laughs> yeah, no kidding. No, because before her, I liked Rainbow Bright. I was like four years old. Oh, Actually, yeah. sure. Sorry, Alyssa Milano was my first human crush. But my first movie crush was Phoebe Cates as Ooh, yeah. uh, in Gremlins. Alyssa Milano's a good one. Yeah, Phoebe okay. Cates is a big one for me too. Yeah, Phoebe Cates and. Uh, uh, ooh, what was the other? There's another one, uh, but I can't think of the top of my head. Uh, Wayne Gretzky's wife was a big one when I was a kid. Janet Jones, is that her name? I thought you were going to say Wayne Gretzky. <laughs> oh, yeah, him too. I have a thing for Canadians, as you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> amazing. He had a good, he had a nice feathered head of hair in the early 80s. Right? Oh, fuck. It was amazing. Even Shokasugi was like, fuck. <laughs> yeah. I got to go to Edmonton and get some lessons, man. <laughs> yeah, no, it's great. Now, we would be remiss if we did not mention. 
the V8 juice seduction scene. Yeah, I, I didn't mention it. Uh, it. It's been mentioned so much, but I, we, we would be remiss if we didn't mention it because it's like, you know, I mean, there, there's certain seduction scenes that I find hot and erotic. I don't know how you feel about the V8 scene. Do you find it I, hot? I don't find it hot. <laughs> I find it repulsive, but it makes for amazing cinema. Oh, yeah, it definitely does. I mean, it, <laughs> it's oh, it's ridiculous. I remember I was at the... It's uh, ridiculous. <laughs> it's ridiculous. Uh, I was at the... Uh, uh, the the getaway for the podcasters recently, you know, the one uh, up in the uh, the mountains there, and uh, somebody had brought uh, V eight juice, you know, to, to drink. <laughs> and I remember thinking to myself, I wonder if I, if I joked around, if I poured this on my chest, if anybody would get the joke. I, I know of only a couple that would have got it though. If 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 that joke hadn't have went over, you would look like such a chump, man, pouring that stuff down your chest. <laughs> oh, I'd have been I'd have been the talk of the whole trip. <laughs> it would have just been the most awkward silence. Oh. Well, Troy, Troy was there, and I know he's a big fan of Ninja Three, so he he would have gotten it at least. Yeah, J- Troy could have played C chord to your dicky. <laughs> uh, oh fuck! Those, man. those names together are awful, man. C chord and dicky. Talk about a bad cop show. <laughs> oh man, this is the point in the show where we lose our shit, man. <laughs> Jesus, um, Furstenberg loves fog, man. Oh yeah, yeah, he does, man. That's a the same. Fulci was probably even looking at it like <laughs> this son of a bitch. <laughs> you see his name in the credits. He yeah, has like the, uh, uh, the the fog um, consultant. Yeah. You motherfucker! <laughs> He's yelling, "Dicky man, making her cry off screen." Um, uh, that, sounds, that sounds like the Iron Sheik, not Lucio Fulci. <laughs> Number one. <laughs> oh Jesus! Jesus! Um. Yeah, we, you mentioned. I'm losing my shit so fast here, man. Um, hot laser, hot laser. Oh, fuck, I can't even speak. Hot licks and laser eyes. You mentioned that. Oh yeah. You, um, know, you know something we didn't mention is the soundtrack to this film. The songs are amazing. Yeah. Uh, Body shop obsession. There's uh, <laughs> some amazing songs. I, I'm, I'm gonna try to find some, man. But some of the songs are pretty amazing. They are, man. And I'll tell you, it's. Uh, the light show that we get when Dickie's closet <laughs> opens up and the fucking the fog starts rolling out. It looks like a fuck, and the laser looks like a fucking Frankie goes to Hollywood video, man. <laughs> oh shit! Uh, that would have been great if somebody would have had like one of those big word shirts on, you know, like, relax, relax, or something. Yeah, it would have been amazing. Oh. Uh, <clears throat> what else do we got here? Um, Secord looked like he could have been a Wham fan. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> With his, with his t-shirt sleeves rolled up a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the smart trick of having Dickie in the... <laughs> I can't even keep my shit together, man. Dickie in the ninja suit. So you can, you know, from the back, in all seriousness, you can you can shoot some of the stunts yeah. without trying to put a wig on a man. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I think uh, so. some of the rumors were that uh, Shokazugi did some of that stuff, but I think actually it was that stunt man that did most of it. I yeah. can't remember his name off the top of my head, but uh, I'll look for it here. But I think it was mostly your dicky. Yeah, off the top of my, off the top of my dicky. I can't secord his name off the top of my dicky, <laughs> but uh... sound like fucking uh, Motley, man. <laughs> I know. Jesus. Well, I can't laugh like I normally laugh because I wake my son up. So I think I just woke my sons up. <laughs> Fuck. Um, I'm surprised when she when she gets into the because this is like a, a slasher film in some ways, right? Yeah, it she's is. getting revenge mm-hmm. and. Uh, I love when she goes to the Italian cop 
his house and he's playing pool in his silk boxers. Man, that guy's jumping around so much. I'm surprised his dick he didn't flop out of his silk sh- his boxer shorts, yeah, man. Really. <laughs> he's jumping around like mad. Yeah. Um, Steve Lambert is that guy's name. Steve. Lambert. Oh right. Mary Tyler Moore is a is a psychologist in this. She's uncredited. Yeah. Um, you know what's interesting about stunt coordinators is when you look through their film history, it's just amazing how much their their filmographies like run the gamut. You know, he's well, he's been in everything from uh, Revenge of the Ninja. They call me Bruce. Um, you know, you just name it. I mean, Ghostbusters two to fucking uh, Escape from L.A. Panic Room to greet the Green Hornet recently. It's just insane. Yeah, that is wild, man. Um, <clears throat> if, if we can get serious for a minute, <laughs> he's yeah. been in a lot of stuff. <laughs> yeah. No kidding. Yeah, no, you're right, though. When you look at them, they'll do everything from like, um, you know, stunts on a kid's film, like, uh, I don't know, Goonies, let's say, or Big, let's say. Yeah. They're, they're, let's say there's a stunt scene in Big. But yeah, yeah. This, this just how that field, they do really run the gamut of, of what they do, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you can have an Evil Dead moment in the film with a a, a, a missed exorcism. <laughs> and uh, yeah. and Dickie's outfit in that scene is terrible. She's got a sweater vest and a red lumberjack shirt on. Yeah. <laughs> it's not a good look. Maybe that's what first Firstenberg meant when you said I was trying to have her more as a male character. Yeah. I don't know. Well, she, she comes across as kind of, you know, she's got this very manly job. She comes across as a bit of a tomboy, but it's weird because then they put her in the aerobic stuff and, you know, she's playing video games. That's not, not, not to sound like, you know, I don't think women play video games, but, you know, I'm just saying it does seem like a very much a boy's fantasy of what a girl's like. Sure. Oh, no, absolutely. It does. Mm-hmm. Uh, who has the better hair in this film, Dickie or Kasuki? <laughs> All I know is the blow dryer budget was out of control, probably. <laughs> yeah, big time, man. <laughs> big time. I can see Kasugi coming in. Somebody took his blow dryer, coming in with that real serious look. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely, man. Um, Kasugi is a man after our own heart in this because he has a Ninja Star belt buckle and he drives an El Camino. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I forgot about the El Camino. Oh, I, love, I love the El Camino, man. It's amazing. And Dickie does like the Incredible Hulk thing when she's like possessed. She really reminds me of uh, Ferrigno oh, yeah. on that. Yeah, the, uh, he- the heavy breathing. Yeah, yeah, and just the eyes and the sn- snarling and stuff. It was great. Yeah, I have to say, one of the conventions, I don't think we've ever brought up before, but one of my favorite cinematic conventions is if your film isn't like a, like a romantic kind of melodrama, if you have a funeral scene in a film involving police, there's going to be a slaughter at the funeral. <laughs> it almost <laughs> always seems like there is, yes. Guaranteed. Um, oh, it's insane. <laughs> oh, yeah, it is insane. Uh, burr, 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 burr. Oh, I don't know. There's the great shake the camera. It's an earthquake <laughs> effect. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, that, that's pretty. I got so many more notes. I'll just all we gotta we gotta cut it off here. So I was looking. I was looking through uh, Kasugi's uh, filmography, and in one of those moments where you find a crazy uh, actor's name. In a, film, yeah. in a film he did called, uh, which I've never seen, it stars Christopher Lee and uh, and him, called Journey, oh, wow. of, Journey of Honor in 1991. Uh, i got to see this thing. Uh, but it's directed by Gordon Hessler, who's... Uh, oh, nice. Uh, I think he directed a few things that we know. Yeah, yeah, he uh, did. I, I, yeah, he definitely did. I think he did Shaft. Did he do Shaft? That was Gordon Douglas. Well, who, I don't know. Anyway, I might be... That was um, Michael... Not Michael Parks. Fuck. 
Gordon Parks? Gordon Parks? <laughs> yeah, maybe. <laughs> <clears throat> Who's on first? Yeah. Anyway, Gordon Hessler did Pray for Death, uh, so we know that. And, oh, uh, yes. That's one we've actually covered. And I think he did another one we covered, but I can't think of the top of my head, maybe. Uh, but anyway, uh, looking through the actor credits, I was like, oh, who else is in this movie? There's an actor named Ronald Pickup. <laughs> oh, nice. <laughs> that's an unfortunate name. Ronald Whoa, Pickup. I really got to see this uh, Journey of Honor. It's got Toshiro Mifune in it, too. Oh, wow. Anakin Sugi and Christopher Lee. Yeah. Shit. And, of course, John Reese davies <laughs> And Pavarotti. Nice. Nice. And Are you Ron- serious? Yeah. No, I'm not making it up. And, and wow. Ronald Pickup. So I gotta, and Ronald Pickup. <laughs> I got to see this. That's uh, amazing. Okay. Um, my make or break. Woo, where to start, man? Uh, there's so many make or break moments in this film. Oh, that's this is that's a this that's the million dollar question really for me because that's the toughest part for me is the mega break. Um, Jesus, I'm gonna go with the the opening because it's so ludicrous and crazy. Uh, there's so many moments though that are make or break in this film. Yeah. Uh, you could almost say the whole film is a make or break for some. So, but uh, yeah, I'm gonna go with the opening because it's like ten or fifteen minutes of insanity, uh, just crazy stuff. I think Mondo Justin called it more, uh, the car chase more insane than like, uh, he called it something, but I, I don't know if I agree with that, but I will say it's insane. <laughs> yeah. Uh, my MVT for this, I'm going to go with Dickie, man. Uh, I don't know if I'm going to be able to give it to her ever again. So, <laughs> no <pun intended. laughs> yeah. I'd love, I'd love to give her some Dickie, but, uh, <laughs> we are so childish like sometimes. You'd like to C chord to her Dickie. I just want to remind everybody I am 40. Uh, <laughs> and I'm I'm in a room in my house by myself talking about giving Lucinda to Dickie some Dickie. That's what everybody That's to, at seven a.m. on a Sunday. <laughs> I just want everybody to think about that. <laughs> Jesus, uh, but yeah, I don't know if I'll ever be able to give her um, uh, the MVT again because um, I don't I don't think I give it to her for breaking and breaking too. If we ever review those, which obviously be we, the dancing yeah. uh, for the culture, yeah. But uh, and I don't think I would for cheerleader camp or and definitely not for Grease too. So I just don't see any other reason to give her that for that. But I mean, she is the star of the film, and she is very prominent, and she's very charismatic. I think she's very likable in the film. She is, um, you know, and and very discharming in a way. Uh, I would love to have seen a show. Sorry, to come, I would love to have seen a show ongoing, like uh, my my secret ninja demonic possession, where. <laughs> Every week she had inconvenient. That's where I was going with the Hulk angle. I wish this had been a show like the 70s for or 80s Ferrigno Hulk show, but it was Dicky as a demonic ninja. Oh, man. Sorry, that's where I was going with it. My apologies for cutting you off. No problem. Um, uh, when everybody listens to this review, they're not going to hear much of a review. They're going to hear a bunch of two children giggling the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> this morning, even your sons are more mature than me and you. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Jesus. Uh, talk about a, a, a difference in the two reviews. Man, you couldn't have programmed two more different films than these two, man. It's like, true, man. You got all deep on the first one. This one, we're out of control. Uh, my score for the film, this is kind of tough, too, because you kind of got to rate it for entertainment value, in my opinion, and, uh, and that's what I'm going to do. I give this film a 7.75 out of 10. Uh, I love it. I do think it's it's terribly flawed in a lot of ways, uh, uh, but and and by terribly flawed I mean mainly my biggest problems with it is some of the middle really does sag a little bit. Yeah. I know we say that a lot, and that's kind of become a catchphrase for us. But I really do feel like there was a couple moments where I was checking the runtime, and that's never good. Yeah. And uh, I mean I've watched this film a thousand times, and yet I'm still checking the runtime. So I'm sitting there thinking, well, this is always a deterrent. And so you know, mm-hmm. but seven point seven five for a film like this. 
because I, I think it's like you know I think it's one of the canon masterpieces. I'll say that absolutely, and it's one of Canon's uh, shining moments. And uh, this is a must buy for anybody that loves this kind of cinema from the eighties. If you don't own this, uh, what's wrong with you? That's all I got to say. So yeah, it's a, it's a definite definite buy. Uh, we're pretty similar. Um, my ABT is also the opening, one of the best openings, one of my favorite openings in film. It's just so wild. <laughs> Um, and in saying that, my MVT, as much as I'd like to make it dicky, it's uh, the insanity of the film. Yeah. Because you you could have cast a Phoebe Cates or what's the one you had, Betsy Russell. Oh, I mean, yeah. you could cast a yeah. lot of fresh faces. It's true. It's in true. That you role. could have. And I, and I like Dickie, not, not to shortchange her, because she is very good in the film mm-hmm. for what she needs to be. Um, but the MVT is just the insanity of it. Because, like I said, you don't receive very, very many bonkers films like this in America. And my script is a little bit higher. It's an 8.25. Um, very entertaining film. But I'm, I'm totally with you, man. The middle sags. It's very flabby in the middle. And you're, you're, if if the opening wasn't as strong as it was, you would really feel the middle of that film. Yeah, it, it's, it's the exposition, right? The exposition is where it hurts itself because it tries to over-explain itself. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where it hurts itself because the set pieces, the possession scenes, the... The lovemaking scene, the the aerobic scene, the opening, all these set pieces that we can remember are classic moments. But mm-hmm. the problem is, is in the exposition. The exposition, they, it really kind of loses itself. And a great example of that is, you know, me quoting that damn doctor talking about a preoccupation with Japanese culture. I mean, it just it really takes itself a little too seriously trying to explain the story when it should just stuck to its guns. Also, the, another, stuck with its, its ninja stars. Yeah, yeah. Stuck with its katana blade. The uh, <laughs> The um, another convention in '80s movies that I miss. I miss false rocks where you open them up and they're lit up on the inside. That was an '80s thing, man. Oh, where people yeah, would always yeah, open man. the false rocks. <laughs> That's right. No, you're right, man. And they always made that noise, like that crypt noise. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sound like somebody trying to comb Shokasugi's hair. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot. There's a lot of Aquanet in that hair, yeah. man. I wonder if him and Silva ever did a film together. I don't think oh, they wow. did. That would have been amazing. Talk about some Aquanet. For real. Oh, okay. So that's the big show. That's everything. Uh, I'm guessing. I'm looking at the time. I know we don't have time for pleasantries yet again, but uh, you know, you know what it is. Uh, and apologies to everyone. Yeah. We're not trying to shortchange you guys. Just yeah. schedule us. But definitely go over to diabolicdvd.com, and uh, uh, that was easy for me to say, right? Diabolicdvd.com, and <laughs> and uh, buy these two definitely because they're both mine for sure. I would definitely yeah, buy both, both of these. Yeah, must buys. And, uh, yeah, that's just, I don't know what we're doing next week. I don't really, we've kind of talked about it. We still got some stuff we got to get off the Kickstarter schedule and stuff, but I, I haven't had a chance cause I've, you know, six of the seven days of this past week I've worked. So I haven't had a chance to really communicate with very many people. So, uh, I think we'll do the thing we do where we announce it on the Facebook group again. Let's see if we can work something out behind the scenes and get it going. Yeah, man. And that's what we'll do. So we don't know what we're doing next week, but it'll be fun. Trust me. All right. You got anything else you'd like to add for the uh, end of the show? Uh, I don't. I've been more gibberish and nonsensical <laughs> giggling. So. <laughs> All right. So with that being said, I guess the only thing left to say is, uh, well, I mean, it's what we always say. We're going to go wash our dickies. <laughs> and uh, that, and I just said the country way of saying wash. Which and and is hairspray our hair. And- <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but that will say. I think we might have. There might have been a little bit of. There might have been a little bit of a Billy Sacord on the end of this a little limp noodle. <laughs> and all right, with that, we'll say adios. Adios. Thanks for listening. You can find the gentleman at ggtmc.com. You can call the gentleman at two zero six 
1-877-666-5207. And you can email the gentleman at midnightcinema at gmail.com.